Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Four stage engines start. Three, two, one. One, boosters in ignition, and liftoff of Artemis One. We rise together back to the moon and beyond. Well, there you go. While you were sleeping, the Artemis Moon mission taking flight and a launch that will pave the way for NASA's next era of space exploration. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us. It is Wednesday, November 16th, and we're going to go live to the Kennedy Space Center. We're going to do that in just a moment. We also have some news breaking right now. We're now learning who was likely behind the missile that landed in the NATO nation of Poland. Also this, former President Trump announcing he is running for office again, running for president again amid multiple criminal investigations, disappointing midterm results for Republicans, and after he incited a deadly insurrection. And the family member who's staying off the campaign trail. And it is official. Mitch McConnell has a challenger for his job as the top GOP leader in the Senate. We'll tell you what's behind Republican Senator Rick Scott's move and how McConnell is responding. But we begin this morning with the breaking news. We are now learning it was not Russia that fired a missile into Poland that killed two people overnight. Obviously, Russia and Poland is a member of the military alliance known as NATO. But instead, initial U.S. assessments are that it likely came from Ukrainian forces. This development comes as NATO ambassadors are holding an emergency meeting this morning to discuss the deadly explosion. Kevin's Liptak is CNN's Kevin Liptak is live for CNN this morning in Bali, Indonesia, where the president just left a few hours ago. Kevin, what's your reporting this morning? Yeah, two officials who are familiar with this initial U.S. assessment uh, say this assessment says that the uh, missile did not originate in Russia, but that it originated uh, in Ukraine. And we do know that Ukraine uses Russian-made missiles in its air defense systems. And it does seem as if this is what President Biden uh, was alluding to when he emerged after crisis talks here at the G20 and said that it was unlikely that this missile originated in Russia. Of course, he wanted to say that he wanted to be definitive. He wants to look at all of the intelligence first uh, before he can come out and say uh, with any certainty where this missile originated. And I think that's because of the implications that are at stake here. Poland, of course, is a member of NATO. You have Article 5, which is the Common Defense Treaty. An attack against one is an attack against all. And certainly President Biden and other Western leaders want to be absolutely sure that they know where this missile originated uh, before they come out and say so definitively. Now, we do know that this assessment was a topic of discussion among the leaders when President Biden convened them at his hotel here in Bali, members of the G7, some uh, members of NATO states. We also understand that it will be discussed in Brussels today as NATO members uh, begin talking about a way forward, talking about this analysis. Now, what National Security Council spokesman said is that the U.S. will support Poland's ongoing investigation, and this is still being investigated. They're sort of bringing out the pieces of this missile, putting it back together, trying to figure out where it came from. 
And we also heard uh, from an advisor to the Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky, who did not deny reports that this missile originated in Ukraine, but essentially said that any casualties in this war are a responsibility of Russia uh, because it began this conflict. Mm. Caitlin. Great reporting. Kevin Lipitak, thank you. All right, now let's bring in our colleague Matthew Chance. He is live for CNN this morning in the Polish village of Shevodov where the blast happened. Matthew, I wonder this morning, have you heard from Polish officials since we had learned that news that these, this missile likely originated in Ukraine? Um, not, not this morning so far, though. We are expecting a statement over the next few minutes after the, the president and the prime minister of the country formulate uh, what their latest position is. Of course, there's been uh, high-level meetings taking place in the country, as you can see behind me. These are Polish military vehicles heading to the scene uh, of the explosion of, of that missile, where those two people were killed, Polish citizens, of course, on Polish territory, because there's an ongoing investigation underway on the ground, which is likely to include uh, experts from the United States as well, although it's not clear whether they've actually arrived yet. They may have. The police tell me there's lots of people on the scene, which is a few hundred yards away from uh, where we're allowed to go. The road's been uh, blocked off. But it is, as Kevin was saying in his last report, um, it, it is so crucial uh, for you know, the Poles, the, the, the NATO alliance, to get to the bottom of who actually fired this missile. Because if it was the Russians, and the Russians categorically deny it, that's one course of action that, that's potential and potentially a very serious one, uh, given uh, you know, Article 5 of the NATO treaty, which means an attack on one alliance member is an attack on all of them. Uh, and if it's the Ukrainians, as is possible, uh, that's a very different set of consequences. I think mm -hmm. you have to remember the context in which this missile strike or this explosion actually took place. It was at a time when there were nearly a hundred cruise missiles being fired at various targets inside Ukraine by the Russians and the Ukraine's, Ukrainians desperately trying to intercept them with their Russian-made interceptors. So you can easily see how it could have been the Russians yeah. or the Ukrainians yeah. that are responsible for this. You certainly can, Matthew Chance. Uh, thank you so much to you and your team there in that village. Done. So let's get some analysis on all of this. I want to bring in now retired U.S. Army Major Mike Lyons. Good morning to you. Thank you so much for joining. Um, was very simple question. Was it a mistake? Yeah, it, it looks like it's a terrible mistake because of the Ukraine air defense platform. So they're deployed in depth across Ukraine in such a way to protect the, the major cities and the infrastructure. And what happened is for the past 24 hours, Russia has been firing hundreds of missiles in here. And as one gets close to leave here, for example, one of these uh, air defense systems is a chaser, hits it from behind, likely gets it close to the border and then pushes that pushes debris that. right over the border. It was only four kilometers. So it's not the target makes no sense from Russia's perspective. Again, you look at what happened on the ground. It looks like it was remnants from air defense systems. Yeah. Having been there in Lviv, I mean, this is pretty close to the Polish border. It's sure. the way that most people come into the, the country now because it usually they would go in through possibly going through Russia. But now this is really far west for this to happen. Rockets are going this far into Ukraine now. Yeah, and, and a lot of it has to do with the fact that um, Russian, Russian, troops rockets, have yeah, Russian troops have deployed in, in this area here to save them from a tactical perspective. So strategically now, you're going to see long-range bombing, long-range missile attacks into the West, knowing that's where the supply lines are, infrastructure is. 
The, the, Ukraine is looking to have a very tough winter. Russia is going to try to turn the lights on, turn the lights out of Ukraine and give them as much hardship as they can. Re- really terrorist type attacks here. So then the, the next question is, now what? Now what happens? Because Russia will obviously use this for propaganda. Right. So, so NATO looks like they're going to have an Article 4, which will have a meeting to discuss it, not Article 5. Article 5 would be an escalation. We want to do that. I think NATO's got to come up with a better political solution here, possibly give uh, Ukraine more weapons, knowing full well that they're going to need help in this wintertime, as, as Russia has dug in at this point. Maybe uh, longer-range attack missiles themselves. The problem is we haven't given them in the past because we don't want those missiles to be fired inside of Russia. We don't want to give them that kind of capacity. So Article 4 is basically to meet and discuss this. Article 5 is actually when there is some action taken. In Article 5, right, the, the NATO members would decide what to do. It still doesn't trigger war. It doesn't necessarily mean it's not like an automatic World War III. Uh, it, it means some countries would respond. So Article 5 has been triggered only once, September 12th. 2001, the day after 9-11, when the countries got together, decided. And what they did was they put a, uh, an Air Force squadron together in order to respond. That was it. So as we look at this, is the, the information of what Article 4 is and what, what happens. But again, that is, there's no official calling for Article 4. They're just looking into the possibility. And that's just a meeting to discuss. Right. Article 4 is a meeting. And there'll be political pressure on Poland not to go Article 5. So then what happens to Zelensky now? How does, what is... How is he going to respond to this? Well, I mean, he's going to continue to have strong rhetoric with regards to this war. He wants more support from the West that keeps coming. And Western countries have got to, again, decide. Maybe this meeting will determine, and within Article 4, will determine that he will get more support. He, he still needs to figure out a way how he's going to get through this winter. That's the kind of help he needs He's right going to now. say, even though it was, you know... It, it was a sad consequence of the war, and therefore we still need your help with this. Yeah, absolutely. And better air defense platforms. In some ways, when you saw the damage on the ground, there were the older Russian-made air defense systems. Major Mike Lyons, thank you very much. I appreciate your perspective. Caitlin? All right, now to space and a giant leap for NASA. Artemis 1 is now headed to the moon. Five, four-stage engine start. Three, two, one. Boosters in ignition. And liftoff of Artemis 1. We rise together. The historic mission launching overnight in Florida, finally overcoming several scrubbed launches, a few hurricanes, and some drama that had plagued the first two attempts at sending the rocket into orbit. CNN's Kristen Fisher is live at the Kennedy Space Center in Florida for CNN This Morning. Kristen, it's remarkable that this has finally, finally happened. I'm sure there's a lot of relief over there. It really is, Caitlin, and it did not disappoint. For those of us standing here, uh, this rocket was so powerful that it literally turned a pitch black night sky into daylight in a matter of seconds. From horizon to horizon, it was like an accelerated sunrise accompanied by a huge shock wave that shook the ground. An absolutely flawless launch for this rocket that has been plagued on the launch pad by uh, hurricanes, technical delays, and two nail biters tonight. Caitlin, first, uh, there was another hydrogen leak. This time they were able to fix it at the launch pad, but to do it, it required calling in what's known as the Red Crew. Think of them as like a a bomb squad, and a rocket that's fully fueled is basically uh, just one big bomb. And so this team, this highly specialized team, had to go out to the launch pad and literally turn some nuts and bolts and they were able to stop that leak. They were really uh, the heroes tonight. And then uh, just shortly before this rocket was supposed to take take off, uh, another problem, there was a problem with the ethernet connector uh, associated with a radar with the US Space Force. Uh, They were able to fix it just in time, but just imagine if a mission as complicated as this had to be scrubbed due to a ethernet 
connector. Wow. <laughs> We've right? all been there, but not with anything <laughs> that this is uh, this important. Hey, I got to ask you, Kristen, this is a, an uncrewed test mission. So the ultimate goal? The ultimate goal is with Artemis 3. This is Artemis 1. Artemis 3 is to land the first woman and the first person of color on the surface of the moon, hopefully by 2025. Uh, as you mentioned, this one, this is an uncrewed mission, but if this is fully a success, that's gonna pave the way for Artemis 2 in 2024. And so the next time this rocket flies, guys, uh, we should see four astronauts on board. Kristen Fisher, we're a bit jealous of your assignment this morning, but we appreciate you joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you, Kristen. All right. Well, this. He tried to overturn a free and fair election. He helped incite the insurrection on January 6th. And now Donald Trump says he is running for the White House again. The former president made it official last night in a speech at Mar-a-Lago, also a speech that was full of false claims about his years in office. Let's go to our colleague Kristen Holmes. She is live in West Palm Beach, Florida, for CNN this morning. Kristen, we're going to fact check uh, a lot of this throughout the program, but talk about the timing. So many Republicans, including some of his advisors, thought he should wait at least until after the Georgia runoff. Why now? That's right, Poppy. But he said that he was all in. And it is important to note, no matter how you feel about Donald Trump, this is a historic event. And not just because only one president has served two non-consecutive terms, but because of who Donald Trump is. This is, as you said, a man who refused to acknowledge the results of a legitimate election, which inspired a riot. He is somebody who is embroiled in multiple legal battles, and he is under investigation federally, at least two of them. So this is now a man who, despite all of that, might once again be president. America's comeback starts right yes! now. Former President Donald Trump announcing another bid for the presidency. Two years ago, we were a great nation, and soon we will be a great nation again. The twice-impeached former president is aiming to be only the second commander-in-chief ever elected to two non-consecutive terms. Trump making the long-anticipated announcement in the wake of election losses from several of his endorsed candidates. Much criticism is being placed on the fact that the Republican Party should have done better, and frankly, much of this blame is correct. But the citizens of our country have not yet realized the full extent and gravity of the pain our nation is going through. And the total effect of the suffering is just starting to take hold. They don't quite feel it yet, but they will very soon. Given the GOP's midterm losses, some Republicans are wary of another Trump presidential bid. It is widely expected he'll face primary challengers. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is seen as one possible contender to challenge the former president. We just uh, tell people to go check out the scoreboard from last Tuesday night. It was a hugely underwhelming, disappointing performance. Another potential contender is his former vice president, Mike Pence. I think we'll have better choices in the future. President Biden, who has yet to announce whether he will seek re-election, tweeted after the announcement, quote, Donald Trump failed America. I believe I can beat Donald Trump again. Trump's desire to announce his campaign early, coming after the FBI search of Mar-a-Lago, which advisors say further emboldened his decision to mount what he believes will be a triumphant political comeback. Trump is the subject of a bevy of lawsuits and federal investigations, including his possible involvement in the January 6th Capitol attack. 
Trump is fighting a subpoena issued by the House Select Committee investigating January 6th over providing documents and testimony to the committee. And Kristen, of course, the former president, it's no secret, he lied when he was in office. What about last night? Because of, it seemed there were a lot of false claims in the, uh, in the statement from the former president. Yeah, there were quite a few inaccuracies. So let me just tick through some of them here because it, it's just going to take too long to get through all of them. Uh, but the ones that I was the most interested in, one is Afghanistan. He claimed that the U.S. left $85 billion. Well, that is in military equipment. Well, that has been disproven by the Pentagon. They have said that number is closer to $7.1 billion. The other one I want to point out is he talked about Mexico, and he said that the border wall was completed. This one was actually more interesting to me, having been following him around the country, because he has said the border wall isn't done. He has campaigned on that, saying they're going to finish the wall. So that, to me, was also an interesting one that he claimed it was done in this speech. And then the last one is something that we've heard him say over and over again. He claimed that Obama had taken several presidential records with him to Chicago. And that, again, is something that has been disproven in a public statement by the National Archives. They said they actually took the documents to Chicago to a secure facility at that time. So just some of those inaccuracies in that speech. Yeah, Kristen Holmes, thank you. And later in the show, Daniel Dale is going to join us with more fact checks from Trump's speech. Up next, a former White House official from the Trump White House is going to join us live. She called his speech low energy, says it was a missed opportunity. And a Republican Senate showdown. Mitch McConnell facing a challenge to his leadership role for Florida's, from Florida's, Rick Scott. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. As former President Trump announces another White House run, so far the announcement has got a pretty harsh reception on Capitol Hill, except for Republican Senator Lindsey Graham, a close ally of the former president, who says Trump will be, quote, hard to beat if he remains as disciplined as Graham believes he was last night. This is the same Lindsey Graham who said this after the attack on the Capitol on January 6th. Trump and I, we've had a hell of a journey. I hate it being this way. Oh my God, I hate it. From my point of view, he's been a consequential president. But today, first thing you'll see. All I can say is uh, count me out, enough is enough. That was then, huh? Things have changed. So joining us now is former Deputy White House Press Secretary for the Trump administration, Sarah Matthews. Sarah, you seem to have a pretty similar reaction last night to Jeb Bush, who, of course, was in turn kind of mocking Trump, saying what a low energy speech by the Donald time for new leaders. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it was just that. It was low energy, uninspiring. I mean, during my time working for President Trump, I've watched him give hundreds of speeches over the two years that I worked for him. And that was by far one of the most boring. I mean, he himself seemed boring while giving the speech. And you could tell he was trying really hard to stay on script. But then he started to get bored and started to ad lib. And it just turned into a rambling mess, in my opinion. Sarah, the National Review uh, this morning, I think, says uh, reflects what a lot of former allies of the president, Republicans, are thinking and saying that the headline is just no, I think we can show it. And the first line is to paraphrase Voltaire, after he attended an orgy, once was an experiment, twice would be perverse. Poppy I, so early. I know. <laughs> I didn't say it. They wrote it. I just repeated it. But do you, do you think, do you think that 
it's just the media that was behind him that is turned and a lot of Republican lawmakers and quote unquote elites. Does that indicate anything about his ardent followers? I do think that um, it's not. I think we need to pass over him. I think that, you know, he's uh, shown that he's not fit to serve. I think that by, you know, personally by inciting um, an insurrection, I think that he's unfit to hold office ever again. But I do think that last night's speech just showed that, uh, you know, he's uninspiring. It was kind of the same speech I've heard him give over the years. There's nothing new to it. This was an opportunity for him to give his followers a forward-looking message. Mm -hmm. And in my opinion, it was kind of a boring speech. We should remind people that Sarah, that, that you, that she quit the day of the insurrection yeah. because of what he did. This is a, a, a tweet that is getting a lot of attention uh, as well. And this is from NPR, and it's a breaking. Donald Trump, who tried to overthrow the results of the 2020 presidential election and inspired a deadly riot at the Capitol in a desperate attempt to keep himself in power, has filed to run for president again in 2024. That is chock full of nuts, as they say, um, and basically explains what's happened over the last seven years in just one sentence. The question is, why is he defying even members of his own party, even allies who loved him before and say, who are now saying, don't do this. And as Poppy pointed out, no, from the National Review. Why is he doing it? I do think that he thinks that this is a potential way for him to avoid, you know, these criminal investigations that are swarming around him. Um, but I also think it's his e own ego. I mean, he can't you know, admit to himself that he lost the 2020 election. And so he thinks that he needs to probably prove something um, to his followers or to himself. And um, I do think that uh, we do need to move in a new direction. I think that a lot of Republicans, both publicly and privately, have expressed um, dismay that he announced so early, um, especially with the Georgia Senate runoff happening. I think all um, focus for Republicans should be on that. But that's going to harm Herschel Walker with this early announcement as but well. It, and you know what? It, it doesn't shield him. I mean, but it's just is it an offer that he believes a narrative that he can sell to voters? Because it, it really doesn't shield him that he's running. No, I completely agree. It definitely does not shield him um, from those investigations. But I do think that it's his way of then if, you know, they do come at him, he can make that case to his voters of, oh, look, this is all political. They're only going after me because they don't want me to be president again. So that's what it seems to be the case, in my opinion. It, it is part of I'm told that is part of what drove that announcement last night, why it was so early, is because of the investigations. Sarah, I do wonder, you worked in the Trump White House. Obviously, I was there in the briefing room at the time. I wonder about the staffing, what that's going to look like for this second run, because Ivanka Trump put out a statement overnight saying, I do not plan to be involved in politics. While I will always love and support my father going forward, I will do so outside the political arena. Do you think a lot of your former colleagues will go back to work for Trump again? I think some of the bigger names that you've seen, um, I don't think they will go back and work for him. You know, Ivanka made clear that she will not be playing a role if, um, you know, he ends up winning another presidential election. Um, I think that you are going to see some of the same folks, though, um, from the previous administration um, stick with him. A lot of them are still down in uh, Mar-a-Lago with him to this day. Um, and I think that there is a chance that uh, some of those folks will go back. I will definitely not be one of them. Not that I would be welcome back anyways. <laughs> but um, I just can't imagine going back and working for him after um, watching him push all of these lies about the election and obviously what he did on January 6, 2021 as well. Sarah Matthews, thank you very much. Really so appreciate much. you coming on.
Um, the interesting thing, we've seen this before, people who say, I can't deal with this. Look at Lindsey Graham, right? And a lot of the uh, elected officials said they couldn't, especially after the grab them by the P. Until they, until they could? And then they all... Until they did. Again. So let's see if it happens this time. Tonight, the former Vice President Mike Pence will join our Jake Tapper. It's going to be live for a CNN town hall. Pence says that he believes Republicans will have better choices in 2024. I think he probably hopes one of those choices will be him. So make sure you tune in at 9 p.m. Eastern right here on CNN. Well, ahead, Senator Rick Scott announcing plans to challenge his Republican peer, Mitch McConnell, for the top job in the Senate for Republicans. Does he stand a chance? And what does McConnell think? And it was once a corporate icon. The author of the new book, Power Failure, is here to talk about the stunning rise and fall of GE. This is where the Republican Civil War goes right now. It's moving to the Senate this morning. Florida Senator Rick Scott has announced a bid to challenge Mitch McConnell for the top GOP leadership role he has held for the last 15 years in the Senate. Scott's saying that a big change is needed and it's time for new leadership in the Senate. Mitch McConnell says this. I think the outcome is pretty clear. I want to repeat again. Uh, I have the votes. I will be elected. Well, the tensions between the two senators heating up following the GOP's shortcomings in the midterm elections. Well, I never predicted a red wave. We never saw that in any of our polling. Here's what happened to us. Election day, our voters didn't show up. We didn't get enough voters. It's a complete disappointment. It's pretty obvious, and all of you have been writing about it, uh, what happened. We underperformed among independents and moderates because their impression of many of the people in our party in leadership roles is that they're involved in chaos, negativity, uh, excessive uh, attacks. What are we running on? What do we stand for? What are we hell-bent to get done? What we, you know, you know, there's no plan to do that. The leadership in the Republican Senate says, we know you cannot have a plan. We're just going to run against how bad the Democrats are. And actually, then they cave into the Democrats. The Republican leadership caved in on the debt ceiling, caved in on a gun bill, caved in on a fake infrastructure bill. And then we make it difficult for our candidates. Candidate quality, you recall, I said in August, is important. And in most of our states, we've met that test. In a few of them, we did not. So let's bring in CNN's Jessica Dean live for us on Capitol Hill this morning. Jessica, good morning to you. I was just reading uh, before the show, election denial limits turnout for the GOP. That's in the Times. Every major paper across the country is similar headlines. Um, what the former president stood for was exactly that. And the GOP believes that it limited their turnout. So what has been the reaction from the GOP after this announcement? Right. Well, Don, the, the fact of the matter is Scott does not likely at this point have the votes to challenge Mitch McConnell. What is key, and I think what people uh, can take away from this, is the fact that McConnell is being challenged at all. He's the longest serving Republican leader. Uh, Rick Scott is part of Senate leadership. So every Tuesday, they all stand together, uh, ostensibly putting together a united front. That is not what we're seeing spilling out into public view. You're really seeing uh, the division between this party and which way they believe 
believe they should be pushing forward. You have Rick Scott on one side, you have Mitch McConnell on the other. Uh, We know these elections are scheduled for later this morning. It is possible they get delayed. We have some senators calling for a delay in those elections. Uh, But you heard Mitch McConnell. He's confident he's going to have the votes. The the bottom line, again, is that this division is spilling out into public view. But this has been uh, broiling for some time now. Mm -hmm. It's just really reaching a fever pitch, you guys. There's a, a lot of beef, Jess, as you know well, between the two for a number of reasons including strategy and funding uh, in the midterms. But also, uh, McConnell was really mad when Rick Scott earlier this year put out that policy proposal, and it included sunsets to Medicare and Social Security. uh, And that's a big deal for millions and millions and millions of Americans. It absolutely is, Poppy. And that was not part of what Mitch McConnell wanted to put out. It was not part of his message leading into the midterms. And then uh, we heard from Senator Scott, who kind of went rogue and, and did his own thing. And that was the message he believed was going to be the most effective. And look, he has some support uh, within uh, the Republican senators uh, th- that believe that he is the way forward. Uh, but Mitch McConnell certainly does not see it that way. And you heard uh, his assessment of what happened in these midterm elections about moderates and independence uh, about candidate quality. These are things he's been touching on, uh, you know, that we've heard leading up to these elections. He said back in August he was con- concerned about candidate quality, uh, but really more also, also too, about being united in their messaging. And that was not what we were getting from Scott versus McConnell. And now you're really seeing that play out. And we're going to see what happens later today. Again, the key here is will they delay this or will it actually happen this later this morning? Okay. Jessica Dean on the Hill. Thank you for the reporting. Chaos, even as the min- in the minority. That's going to be right. interesting to watch. A troubling study says more than a billion of you are at risk of hearing loss. Guess what? From listening to your music too loud. Plus this. You won't break my soul. Beyonce has just tied her husband, Jay-Z, for the most Grammy nominations of all time. Also ahead, the powerhouse artist that she is facing in a rematch at the awards. Behold, the titans of pop. Just how loud are you listening to your music? Asking for a friend because a new study says you might want to turn the volume down. A billion people are at risk of hearing loss from their earbuds. So joining us now to talk about this devastating development is CNN medical correspondent, Dr. Tara Narula. What'd you say? I listened to. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. This is your IFC ear. That's causing look, issues. These things. Yeah. That's real. It's real. It's we have those it and earbuds that are, we're getting like the double whammy yeah, here. But what does this study show? Because, I mean, we all, whether it's AirPods, the ones that have cords, which is what I use. Yeah. We're all listening to stuff all the time. I mean, noise is everywhere, um, particularly if, the, if you live in New York City. But yes, we know that 430 million people worldwide suffer from some sort of disabling hearing loss. In fact, in America, that's about 40 million. Um, so these researchers wanted to see what is the effect on the youth and adolescent population. So they looked at 33 studies over 20 years from 20 countries, and they found that they estimated that about 1 billion of those ages 12 to 34 are at risk for hearing loss based on unsafe listening. And 1 by billion? 1 billion. And 
That was based on personal listening devices, so phones, MP3 players, and also entertainment venues. So when you go out yeah. at night, clubs, concerts, all of that. So they really are classifying this as a public health issue that we all need to pay a lot more attention to. Um, I did yesterday as I was reading the study and listening to my music on my <laughs> AirPods. Turn it down. <laughs> right, exactly. When I'm coming to work, by the way, all the, do you guys see this? All the club goers are coming out of the clubs. Like literally, <laughs> at like, that, that hour. was my, that was my, that was your life. That was, you were coming out of the club. That too. was my former life. <laughs> but what kind of damage can it create? Is it, is it like permanent? Well, it can be. And so it can be from a single exposure to really loud noise or recurrent exposure that can be kind of cumulative over time. And our auditory system is really sensitive. We have these very delicate hair cells in the inner ear. You're born with a certain number. If you lose them, that can contribute to hearing loss. Also, the fibers, the nerve fibers in the ear are sensitive, and those can get damaged. And so when we're talking about uh, damage, it's really from both the intensity, the frequency, the loudness, all of that together, the duration of exposure. Um, okay, so it's inescapable. Sorry not to, but it's yeah. inescapable because you, you, you're, my AirPods talk to me, right? Yeah. Poppy is texting you, would you like to respond? Would you like to <laughs> listen, blah, blah, blah. And then I'll be talking to someone, right? And then it'll say, would you like to say, I want a, you know, a half cap or whatever to Poppy? And I'm like, no. And then barista's <laughs> going, wait, you don't want the coffee? And I'm like, so well, yes. But you can't escape it. So then the question is, what do you do? Yeah, well, you got to pay attention um, to the noise level. So first of all, you can turn down the volume. You can take a break. If you're at a concert, you know, maybe move away from the speakers. You can use earmuffs or ear uh, buds to kind of block out the noise. If you have headphones, you can use the ones that block out the background noise. So that, that allows you to lower the volume. Um, and then there are these co cool apps that you can get on your phone that can tell you the decibels of sound. So uh -huh. a normal conversation, 60 decibels. Anything that's really sustained and over 85 decibels for a long time, that's going to damage you. you. Most music that we listen to, 105 decibels. Concerts, 112. Okay. That's a lot. We're joking a little bit, but it's just, I mean, this is very serious. Sometimes serious. I have my earphones in, though, just so no one will talk to me, but I'm not actually listening to anything. I was just <laughs> saying my best friend does that, so no one's done that to me. Yeah. No, I would not. I would never do yes, that to has. you. Like on planes and stuff. Yeah, right. Yeah. You're avoiding, Don't talk you're avoiding to me. social interaction, right? If it's Thank a you, Doc. Very important the fake study. phone call. I can't talk because I'm on the phone. <laughs> Thank you. Turn down the volume. Yeah, Thank you, Doctor. Thank you, Doctor. Appreciate it. All right, so what happened to GE? We have a new book that details the astounding rise and unimaginable fall of the iconic American company. And the author of that book is going to join us here on set next. So you all know the company General Electric. It is iconic. It sold everything from electricity to jet propulsion to MRI. So how did this American staple really break apart and find itself at risk of disappearing? That is the question at the heart of a new book, Power Failure, The Rise and Fall of an American Icon. It is on sale now. The author, William Cohen, looked at the history of GE, which is slated to divide into three separate companies, by the way, next year and how its leadership contributed to its rise and eventual fall. Let me read you this from the book. Quote, the story of GE's glorious rise and distressing fall is not just a story of a power company or a jet engine company or a TV network or a finance behemoth. It is a cautionary tale about hype, hubris, blind ambition, and the limits of believing and trying to live up continuously to a flawed corporate mythology. We're so happy to have our friend William Cohen here. He also, we should know, you worked a long time ago for GE Capital, one of their financial services divisions that was. This book is stunning. It's remarkable. It's sort of the best look I've ever 
read at Jack Welch and how he led and the good and the bad and the everything in between. So congratulations and thank you. Thank you, Poppy. Congratulations to all of you. It's really a privilege to be thank here you, with friend. you this in the morning. morning. So you, yes. you open with this, this story about being at lunch in Nantucket with Jack Welch. He takes you to lunch. And after lunch, first he's complaining about Immelt, his, his successor. And then he drives you home afterwards and he won't buckle his seatbelt and the dinger keeps going off the whole way home. And he drives down the middle of the road and everyone has to move out of his way. You obviously opened for that, the book with that for a reason. What does it tell us about him? Well, uh, Jack was like GE, iconic. He uh, was a legend by then. I mean, literally at the lunch, people like Phil Mickelson, who was playing golf at the golf course, came up and said hello to him. So. Phil Mickelson is coming up to say hello to Jack Welch. Then there was the CEO of Barclays who came up and said hello. So, I mean, I, was, I knew I was in the presence or around an, you know, an exceptional person. He won't put his seatbelt on. And then I was figuring maybe he shouldn't even be driving at all, frankly. And then he drives down the middle of a pretty narrow road that you know, goes down the heart of Nantucket. And I was thinking, well, if this is it for me, at least... <laughs> At least uh, my obit might say that, uh, you know, I died with Jack Welch driving. So that was the best. So you also write about him having Jack magic. That's what you call it. And being a rare leader, CEO, who doesn't just fake listen to people, who actually listen to people. You know, uh, Jack, of course, was uh, very forceful and uh, very strong minded. But he would also go into meetings with his top executives and be open minded sufficiently to have his mind turned around. Uh, you know, I tell the story uh, of the creation of, uh, you know, some of the networks on NBC, some of the shows, CNBC, MSNBC, if I can mention them, that David Zaslav, uh, you know, had a hand in starting. And, you know, Jack wanted to uh, start a business uh, uh, network inside of uh, NBC. And the way that all happened was he had to have his mind turned around. And he sort of led these executives to, to start this when others you know, thought maybe it wasn't a good idea. But Jack was determined to do it. This is the thing about Jack. He would uh, make up his mind, but then allow it to be turned around if something, mm. um, evidence turned that maybe there was a better solution. Is this the end of an era? It's sort of the celebrity... I, I look at email, and even if you look at what's happening in media now, you have the celebrity CEOs of giant media companies, and it's not so much anymore. Is, is he the, the sort of the end here of that? Well, I think it's, what's incredible about this is that GE has been around for 130 years. I mean, it is truly iconic. I mean, everything we sort of took for granted about this company. And I mean, technology was incredible, like the best jet engines, you know, the best medical equipment. I mean, you name it, the first electric cars even 100 years ago. But it's a real passing end of an era. And so if the most valuable, most respected company in the world can sort of dissolve right before our eyes, what does that sort of necessarily say about you know, Microsoft or Google or Apple, which, of course, did have once upon a time a, uh, a, a very rough patch and then came back. So, I mean, I think capitalism is very, uh, you know, always is evolving and uh, things come in and out. There's creative destruction that was sort of been written about for years. It's very important that, to is, understand the dynamics of various companies. It, this says something, too, about growth, because everything now is shrink, 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 cut, cut, cut. And... Uh, so he had a similar philosophy, but yet he grew it at the same time, which was you know, twelve quite a billion to, to six hundred billion. Yeah, he, you know, he, when he took over as CEO, the company was worth twelve billion, and when he left, mm -hmm. it was around six hundred billion. So and now it's breaking up. And now it's breaking up. So if that can happen to a company like GE, I mean, wow. who, 
It can happen to any company. But he seemed to blame so much of that on his successor, successor. who he said Which he picked. Which, of course, he chose. So. He picked him. What, you know, what was your sense of what was truly driving that? Because he was very open in his criticism when you very spoke open. with him. Surprisingly open, perhaps too open. Did it uh, shock you? Very much so. I mean, right even before I could sit down at the lunch. And it was something he repeated often. And I said, Jack, Tell people what he said. Well, I can't. Don't swear. Yeah. He basically said he chose the wrong guy as his successor, Jeff Immelt. Uh, You know, and Jeff, you know, is a very smart guy and did very well for a number of years. But obviously under his watch, the company uh, started to deteriorate. And, you know, he could have chosen anybody he wanted. I said, Jack, but you chose Jeff. He said, no, he made a big mistake. Well, why were you surprised then? If you, because you said, you know, this guy driving down the middle of the road without a seatbelt, and he was just very Well, that was when he was in his 80s. I mean, but right. why were you surprised that he was so honest Because about- he, you know, don't forget, I don't even remember, but the theater of the selection process of choosing his su- successor was front page news yeah, for years. It was. And he could, you know, again, he had David Zaslov, he had Dave Cody, he had Dave Calhoun, all of whom have gone on to great, uh, become great CEOs. And he chose Jeff Immelt. He could have chosen Robert Nardelli. He could have chosen yeah. Jim McNerney. But he chose Jeff. He made a mistake. And he, he admitted it to me many times. Yeah, and I, 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 we're really interested in how this relates to leaders today. Mm. I mean, look at Elon Musk and how he's leading Twitter right now. Mm. Look at what's happening in Silicon Valley, right, to all of these companies that seemed um, bulletproof. Facebook, Meta, right? right. What's the lesson from Jack Welch and GE that you write about possibly disappearing um, for these companies and these leaders, these guys, they're all guys, by the way. Yes, they, you know, too many of them are guys. It's true. I wish that would change. Uh, look, I mean, nothing is for certain, right? I mean, uh, you think some play, a company like GE, which is around for 130 years, can be around forever. It's just not true. I mean, you think Google or Apple are going to be around forever. And, you know, the choice of the CEO is very, very important understanding your company, understanding the risks that are inherent in the company, understanding how that fits into the overall economic uh, environment is very important. Can you talk about what made Jack Welch tick? I mean, he was just such, I was just so fascinated by this book. I think anyone should read it. But what, did you get a sense of that? Oh my God. I mean, such dynamism, even in his 80s, the twinkle in his eye, the energy the enthusiasm. He was, a, he was an only child. You know, uh, he, he was not a big guy, but he excelled in athletics. He was always a leader. He always, you know, got people uh, around him who believed in him. And, you know, look at the executives who spoke up for him so pa- passionately. As I was writing this book, every one of them just loved the guy. Does social media change the calculation? Because you have now these People who run companies are on social media. You see them smoking pods. You see them in every aspect of their life. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if whether Jack Welch and the way he behaved would be acceptable today. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Uh, the book is Thank great. Here that. it is. Super short, as you can see. Yeah. 800 pages. <laughs> it didn't take very long. Either. <laughs> no. says war? I said when you sat down, is this war and peace? But it's a great read. Yeah. It is you a tell great... tell Poppy read hers. <laughs> I went, I, when I saw him a few days ago, I said, who's your researcher you did it all yourself. All myself. All wow. the interviews, In- all the research incredible. myself. Congrats. It's really amazing. Thank you. All right, Thanks for having me. Thank, Thank you very, very much. much. All right, we are following breaking news about the Russian-made missile that hit Poland. What we're learning about where it likely came from. More CNN This Morning to come after the break.
Good morning, everyone. Wednesday, November 16th. Welcome to CNN This Morning. And this morning, we are learning who launched a missile into Poland, a member of NATO. We're all over the story with reporters on the ground in Poland at the G20 summit in Bali and at NATO headquarters in Brussels. Also this, he tried to overturn the election, inspired the insurrection. Former President Trump still, though, launching a third bid for the White House. We are fact-checking his speech this hour. We'll also talk about the developments in Poland, the scrutiny also around Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter with Connecticut Senator Chris Murphy, who is Polish-American. We're going to begin this morning with the breaking news. Russia denied responsibility, and now we are learning it was likely Ukrainian forces that fired missiles into Poland, a NATO member, killing two people. Poland's president acknowledging the incident was probably an accident. NATO ambassadors are holding an emergency meeting right now to discuss the deadly explosion and how to respond to it. MJ Lee is live for us in Bali, Indonesia, and Melissa Bell is standing by at NATO headquarters in Brussels, Belgium. We're going to begin with MJ. Uh, MJ, hello to you. What are you hearing about this meeting? What are you learning about the incident? Well, what we're learning from two officials who were briefed on the initial U.S. assessments of this missile this morning uh, is that it appears that the missile originated from Ukraine, even though it is Russian made. Now, this would help explain why President Biden, after he he emerged from an emergency meeting with foreign leaders earlier today here in Bali, uh, said that preliminary information seems to suggest that it is unlikely that the missile originated from uh, Russia. Now, the president also said that the U.S. would fully support uh, Poland's ongoing investigation into this matter. He said we must, quote, figure out exactly what happened. He also said that any next steps that are taken would be determined collectively by the United States along with its allies. Now, uh, determining exactly where this missile came from, of course, is so critical uh, because Poland, of course, is a member of NATO and an attack against one of those nations is considered an attack against all. So really, guys, the stakes could not be higher right now. Mm-hmm. And Melissa, we also just got a really critical update from the NATO Secretary General about the intention behind this attack, which is, you know, vital here. What is he saying? That's right. He's just been speaking here at NATO headquarters after that uh, NATO ambassadors meeting, Caitlin, saying that there is no indication of any attack on the part of Russia on NATO territories. And more than that, no indication that Russia is planning any offensive uh, activities against NATO members. Of course, that's what we were waiting to hear from him because we knew that NATO knew more about what had happened. There had been, we understood from NATO officials, a NATO aircraft above Polish airspace when this missile hit. The missile had been tracked. And that's what the ambassadors had been looking at here, the intelligence of exactly what happened. Jen Stoltenberg, the Secretary General, also confirming that this looks now as though this was a Ukrainian uh, anti-missile system that was used to try and counter, to deflect a Russian cruise missile. Debris of each were found on Polish territory, an important uh, fact there. And of course, important then to understand what he went on to do, which was try and calm the tone, explaining that it was a measured and calm tone that was needed, increased vigilance, but no hint at the the time being that NATO is planning any increased military presence on its eastern flank as a result, Caitlin. Yeah, no indication that it was a deliberate attack is incredibly important. MJ Lee, Melissa Bell, thank you both for the updates. 
Well, the battle for the future of the Republican Party and perhaps the White House becoming a little bit clearer this morning. Take a look at this split screen. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, fresh off his reelection, telling Donald Trump to, quote, check the scoreboard. Former Vice President Mike Pence, who has been very critical, especially recently, of his former boss, appearing tonight at a CNN town hall. And, of course, Donald Trump himself officially launching his campaign in a speech full of lies and old hits. Watch. In order to make America great and glorious again, I am tonight announcing my candidacy for President of the United States. CNN reporter Daniel Dale uh, joins us now. You're sharpening your pencil yesterday for sure. And reading through your fact checks, it's, it's pretty stunning how many lies that the president included in that announcement. Let's yeah. hear what he said first about climate and get the facts on the other side. The Green New Deal and the environment, which they say may affect us in 300 years, is all that is talked about. And yet nuclear weapons, which would destroy the world immediately, are never even discussed as a major threat. Can you imagine? They say the ocean will rise one-eighth of an inch over the next 200 to 300 years. So the fact check on that? I counted more than 20 false claims in this speech, guys, and this was one of them. Sea levels are expected to rise way more than former President Trump said. He said an eighth of an inch in 200 to 300 years. Well, the U.S. government's own National Ocean Service says on its website that sea level along the U.S. coastline is projected to rise on average 10 to 12 inches in the next 30 years, which they say will be as much as the rise measured over the last 100 years. And Trump also strongly suggested there that climate change in general may only only affect us Americans in 300 years. We know that is grossly inaccurate. It is affecting the U.S. today in a wide variety of ways. Mm-hmm. And what else did you find uh, that was, you said you, so many of them, he made this um, claim about rising prices when it comes to uh, especially Turkey. Listen to this. You can't get anything and good luck getting a turkey for Thanksgiving. Number one, you won't get it. And if you do, you're going to pay three to four times more than you paid last year. Okay, so turkey prices aren't up 300%, right? They are not. They, they are up, but not even close to that. You can go look at the data online from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Depending on what kind of frozen bird you get, the average national price is up about 7% to 10% over the same week last year. Obviously, that's not nothing. People feel it, but it's not 200% or 300%. So the former president is, is exaggerating about a, a price that people can feel and see themselves. One of his big... He ran on it last time, and he's running on it again, is the border wall. But he made this claim, saying it was completed. Here he was. We are going to restore and secure America's borders just like we had them before, best ever. We built the wall, and now we will add to it. Now, we built the wall, we completed the wall, and then we said, let's do more, and we did a lot more. It's not done, right? It's not done as, as those comments are basically self-contradicting. We finished it and then we said we'd do more. It's not true he completed it. And we know that from official data, according to an official report written by U.S. Customs and Border Protection, two days after Trump left office, there were 458 miles of wall completed under Trump. That's both what they call primary barrier and secondary barrier that reinforced existing barriers. But 280 more miles that had been identified for wall construction had not been completed. So this is an attempt to make it sound like he fully succeeded on a key signature campaign promise. 
but in reality, he only partially fulfilled it. As always, he likes to point the finger at someone else or do this whataboutism because he justified his current legal trouble saying that his predecessor is also guilty. Watch this. The raid of Mar-a-Lago, think of it. And I say, why didn't you raid Bush's place? Why didn't you raid Clinton? 32,000 emails. Why didn't you raid Clinton's place? Why didn't you do Obama, who took a lot of things with him? We will dismantle the deep state and restore government by the people. Uh, none of that checks out. None of that checks out. I'm going to call this one a lie because he said this Obama stuff. He claimed Obama took documents himself in August, and it was debunked then by the National Archives and Records Administration. NARA explained in a public statement that it had taken custody of Obama's records after Obama's term, and it had itself taken those records to a facility that it managed in the Chicago area. And it said that as per federal law, quote, former President Obama has no control over where and how NARA stores the presidential records of his administration. So Trump is suggesting here again that Obama did something like what he did, personally taking documents to his home. With Obama, it just did not happen. Yeah, Poppy said you were sharpening your pencils, but I, uh, let's hope he's in the computer age. <laughs> I just uh, because he's going to need it. For I'm just thinking that now that Trump's running again, Daniel doesn't get another day off. That's no. you know I'm a little concerned about his sleep and his <laughs> vacation time. But we seriously, we'd be lost without you. Thank you for the facts. Thank Thanks, you, Daniel. All right. Going forward, the 2024 campaign isn't the only thing that Trump has on his plate. He is also facing a constellation of legal challenges concerning the 2020 election, Mar-a-Lago documents, his finances, individual lawsuits. Paula Reed is live in Washington for CNN this morning. And Paula, obviously, we heard from sources who said a big part of what was driving that announcement last night had to do with these investigations that the former president is staring down. Well, good morning, Caitlin. Let's be clear. Running for office does not insulate Trump from ongoing criminal investigations. The prosecutors will need to grapple with the political considerations of potentially indicting a presidential candidate. The most immediate legal threat for Trump appears to come out of Georgia, where later today, former White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson is expected to testify before a grand jury hearing evidence about Trump's efforts to overturn the last election. I'm a victim, I will tell you. I'm a victim. Think of it. As he announced another run for the White House, former President Trump said he feels aggrieved by the multiple criminal investigations he faces, including in Georgia, where two of his allies, Senator Lindsey Graham and former Trump National Security Advisor Mike Flynn, are expected to testify before a special grand jury hearing evidence about efforts by Trump. We want all votes counted by election night and his associates to overturn the state's 2020 election results. No, I don't see anything to prosecute him over. On Tuesday, Georgia's Governor Brian Kemp appeared. The truth is, ensuring the integrity of the ballot box isn't partisan. It's about protecting the very foundation of who we are. Kemp is a central witness to the criminal investigation being run by Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis. We are going to look at everything until that investigation is complete. The Georgia probe was prompted by an hour-long January 2021 call from Trump pressing Georgia officials to find the votes to help him win. I just want to find 11,780 votes, which is one more that we have. In Washington, Trump faces two parallel investigations into his role on the attack in the Capitol. 
The House committee investigating January 6th subpoenaed him in October for documents and testimony. We are obligated to seek answers directly from the man who set this all in motion. Trump is not expected to appear before lawmakers. He sued to block that subpoena, and the committee's work wraps up at the end of the year. But the Justice Department is also investigating his role in the attack. A grand jury in D.C. has heard from witnesses, including Trump's former White House counsel. And the former president's legal exposure expanded in August when the FBI searched his Mar-a-Lago residence and recovered documents, including some marked classified, that were taken from the White House. They should give me immediately back everything that they've taken from because it's mine. It's mine. Prosecutors are looking at whether Trump mishandled national secrets or tried to obstruct the investigation. Attorney General Merrick Garland has insisted his investigations are being conducted free from political influence. No person is above the law in this country. Nothing stops us. No per I don't know how to maybe I'll say that again. No person is above the law in this country. I can't say it any more clearly than that. Sources tell CNN that justice officials have considered appointing a special counsel to handle these investigations. Now that Trump has declared his candidacy, the attorney general will need to decide if that's something he wants to do. But under the regulation, a special counsel still reports to the attorney general. So it's unclear that a special counsel would really insulate the attorney general from any political blowback from these cases. Caitlin? We'll be watching it closely. Paula Reed, thank you. In just a few moments, we are going to be joined by CNN political analyst and New York Times political correspondent Maggie Haberman, of course, the notable Trump expert, to discuss his announcement. And ahead, our coverage of that missile hitting a member of NATO. Was it a mistake? We have new details from NATO headquarters and why Russia is praising the U.S. Senator Chris Murphy, who is on the Foreign Relations Committee and recently traveled to Poland, will join us live on CNN this morning. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. More on our breaking news overseas now. The head of NATO moments ago said that the missile landing in the NATO nation of Poland, they believe, was a mistake. Sources tell CNN that the missile likely originated from Ukraine. It went off track. There was concern, of course, yesterday as this was first breaking that it had come from the Russians. Joining us now to talk about these developments is Democratic Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut. He is a member of the Foreign Relations Committee and the co-chair of the U.S.-Poland Caucus. Senator, thank you so much for joining us. First on this reaction from the head of NATO saying that they do believe this was a Ukrainian missile fending off a Russian attack. What's your reaction? Well, I think we need to understand um, how high the risk is of escalation. Uh, I'm uh, going to get briefed today on this matter. I hope that it's true that this wasn't a deliberate uh, decision by Russia to escalate and launch missiles into a NATO nation. But uh, listen, it may be a matter of time before uh, a Russian missile finds its way into a neighboring country, especially given uh, how far Russian attacks are being launched into Western Ukraine. Um, so uh, this is um, a serious situation. Um, obviously, Russia 
understands that if there was an attack on a NATO member, that the United States has a treaty obligation mm -hmm. to respond and to defend uh, our NATO partners. And uh, let's just hope that this early news, that this was a mistake, uh, is true. Um, but it's just further evidence of how dangerous this situation continues to be. To follow up on that, are all senators being briefed today or just the Foreign Relations Committee? No, I expect that we'll get briefings today, uh, either formally or informally, on the Foreign Relations uh, Committee. So there's no scheduled briefing for all senators. But when something like this happens, normally the members of the Foreign Relations Committee will either get formal or informal information from the White House and the Department of State. And Ukrainian President Zelensky came out yesterday and seemed to suggest that these were Russian missiles. Of course, now we are seeing that they believe this was an accident. That's what we're hearing from the Polish president, from the head of NATO. Do you think Zelensky needs to come out and clear that up? Well, the foreign minister uh, also made fairly definitive statements yesterday. Um, listen, this is a war, uh, and obviously uh, the Ukrainians are operating on a knife's edge. Um, they do need to be careful uh, about um, making allegations uh, about attacks on NATO countries uh, until all the evidence is in. Obviously, the United States and NATO allies are not going to make a decision to defend ourselves based on claims from the Ukrainian government. We're going to do our own investigation, and I'm glad that both Poland and the United States uh, took the time to do this investigation. Um, but, um, you know, the Ukrainians are, um, you know, have frayed nerves right now. And having watched uh, Russia deliberately and brutally attack Ukrainian civilians, of course, it wouldn't be um, completely um, ridiculous to think that the Russians may actually launch attacks in Polish territory. They have shown zero regard for international norms. They have violated um, uh, international rule after international rule. And again, I think we just have to be honest that while this may not have been a Russian attack against Poland, um, we can't rule that out in the future. The other big news last night uh, that's happening now, of course, is the former president throwing his hat back into the ring to run for president again. And I'm wondering how Democrats feel about that. Do you feel are you are, it has been reported that Democrats are excited because they think that this is the best chance for them to win or for Joe Biden to win in 2024 if he decides to run? What's your reaction to the former president? I, I'm not excited about Donald Trump's decision to run for office. Um, I think it'd be better for the country if Donald Trump vanished from the political landscape. This is the most dangerous political figure America has encountered, at least in the last half a century. And um, his attacks on democracy, his support for political violence, it threatens to uh, undo the very fabric of the country. So yes, of course, if you care only about politics, uh, the Republican Party will likely be in chaos over the next year as they sort of decide whether they are going to continue to be a cult of personality centered around Donald Trump or whether they're going to be a, a real political party. Uh, for Democrats, this probably increases our political fortunes, but it's bad for the nation. And um, I hope that Donald Trump loses and loses decisively in his bid for the Republican nomination. Senator, a couple questions for you uh, focused around Saudi Arabia. Let's start with Twitter and Elon Musk's acquisition of Twitter. 
the uh, the Committee on Foreign Investment is is hands off. They're not looking at this. Janet Yellen told CBS News after you wrote her a letter saying we really think you should. This week she told CBS News she's not they're not going to do it. She says we have no basis to examine the finances of this company. I'm not aware of any concerns it would cause us to investigate. There's a huge investment from Saudi Arabia and other nations uh, in this. And I just wonder what your response is to her. Yeah, I don't understand uh, Secretary Yellen's decision uh, to not inquire about the circumstances of this massive foreign investment in an American media company. CFIUS, the committee that reviews foreign investment in American companies, was set up for this exact situation where a foreign government has made an investment in a very important American media company, perhaps with the intent of affecting American politics or getting access to Americans' data. Now, some people will point out that the Saudi company here had a stake in Twitter before Elon Musk bought the company. That's true. But almost everybody else cashed out when Musk paid a price for Twitter that was way above valuation. Twitter instead partnered with Musk, stayed in on the deal. And it just makes sense for the United States government to ask why. Right? Yeah. What promises did Musk have to make the, the Saudis in order to stay uh, as part of this uh, financing deal? Well, if CFIUS isn't going to do it, I guess it falls on Congress to decide if you guys want to do something about it. Will you? Can you? What could you do? Well, I hope we will. Um, in the Foreign Relations Committee, I chair the um, subcommittee that oversees the Middle East. Now, most everything we do in our committee is done on a bipartisan basis, so we would have to agree, Republicans and Democrats, to take a look at this investment. Senator Wyden, who chairs the Finance Committee, said yesterday that uh, he believes that uh, an inquiry may be warranted. So I hope that Congress um, takes a look at the Saudis' investment. Now, listen, maybe the conclusion is that this is a straight-up uh, money play by the Saudis. They actually mm -hmm. think they're going to get their money back. They have no side deals with Elon Musk, and the deal moves forward. But let's at least ask those questions, because if Musk says that the reason that he bought Twitter is to promote free speech, well, then the Saudis are a really curious partner, because mm -hmm. the Saudis have the exact opposite uh, goal. They want to repress free speech, right? They want their enemies, political dissidents, to be thrown off of Twitter. So it just doesn't seem to be a marriage that makes a lot of sense unless the Saudis are getting something uh, out of it for their goals, which are not the same as Elon Musk's stated goals. Uh, before you go, on OPEC and the decision to cut 2 million barrels of production a day, the opposite of what the Biden administration was hoping for when President Biden went there, met with them, you have said repeatedly, and I quote, there have to be consequences. There haven't been. What should the Biden administration do? Yeah, I, I actually, you know, think more about this in terms of the long-term relationship with the Saudis. I think their decision to decrease oil production is just final confirmation that Saudi Arabia is not an ally in the normal sense of the word. There are times when our interests intersect, but more often than not in the last 10 years, U.S. interests and Saudi interests are not aligned. And so I just think, you know, we need to 
you know, be very careful about the ways in which we work with the Saudis. So I think we needed to downsize our defense commitment to the Saudis. I would rather see some of the missiles that we're sending to Saudi Arabia to protect that country be sent to Ukraine instead. I've suggested that, proposed that to the administration. Um, I don't think we end our defense relationship with Saudi Arabia, but I don't know that they need to be the preferred partner in the way that they are today, especially when a country like Ukraine could do a lot more with some of the advanced weaponry that we are sending into the Middle East. Before I let you go, I just want to ask you about what's happening uh, in the Senate, because we had uh, Chuck Schumer here uh, earlier in the week, and he said that he wants to work with Republicans. And then you have what's happening with Rick Scott um, and, and Mitch McConnell. I, I just wonder if you, if sort of the turmoil that's happening within the Republican Party, if you're worried that is going to hinder the work that you're wanting to do for the American people. Uh, certainly, I worry about it. Uh, you know, we did a lot of really good bipartisan work in the last two years. Um, you know, last summer, with several conservative Republicans, I wrote the first gun safety bill in 30 years. And um, some of those partners retired, right? The, the folks on the Republican side that used to work with Democrats, they were under such withering assault from Donald Trump that many of them left the Senate. Um, I hope Republicans don't sort of learn the wrong lesson from the last two years. I hope that they, you know, stand for their beliefs, but they continue to engage with Democrats when they think we can get something done that's good for the country. We're going to continue to do outreach to Republicans. We're going to try to get deals done. And I think you'll see that we'll get one done this week. I think we will pass uh, the Marriage Equality Act, mm -hmm. uh, which will force states to recognize same-sex marriages. Uh, and that may be a signal that this era of bipartisan cooperation that we saw over the last two years is not over. At least I'll keep my fingers crossed that that's the case. Yeah, we know we're expecting the procedural vote on that. Senator Chris Murphy, all incredibly important topics. Thank you for joining us here on CNN this morning. Thank you. All right, the Artemis moon mission taking flight in a launch. It's going to pave the way for NASA's next era of space exploration. Also, could former President Trump's reelection run hurt or help him as he faces a slew of investigations? Maggie Haberman is here. to the former president throwing his hat into the ring has been really interesting. You see even Murdoch-led newspapers. Yes. That's a New York this Post. Is, you can barely this see This is it. a New York Post. Do you see that? You can barely see it because it only says Florida man makes announcement. So, boy, how things have changed. Uh, let's bring in now senior political analyst and senior political correspondent for The New York Times, Maggie Haberman. She's also the author of Confidence Man, The Making of Donald Trump and the Breaking of America. This says everything. Um, there is nobody who knows better than Rupert Murdoch that the way to upset Donald Trump is not to say his name. And so it isn't just that he is not the full front page, that he's the banner on the bottom. It's that he's identified as Florida man. And they're not trumpeting him. There is a move away from Trump. I don't want to overstate this. He is still the front runner. Uh, he is still the establishment. He is still a former president. But there are a number of people in the Republican Party who are going to start making clear that they think he is really bad for the party in ways that I think they couldn't quite articulate the same way in, say, 2016, because he didn't have a record. January 6th hadn't happened. We haven't seen all the election denialism of the last 20 months. And so I think all of that becomes a compelling factor. Is it weird to think, like, what, it, it, was, it, was it overnight? Because if you're just at home watching, you're like, well, wait. These people have been behind Donald Trump forever. That's right. It feels like overnight. It feels, it feels like overnight, right? That there's yeah. been this shift. Was it Tuesday? 
I think it was largely Tuesday, yeah. I mean, I think that if the Republicans had had the night that they were forecasting in all of these polls that turned out not to be right, uh, you know, then I think you would have seen people saying, well, you know, Trump succeeded, you know, a lot of the candidates that he backed. Particularly in the Senate, this is a slate of candidates that he largely either encouraged or actually recruited in the case of Herschel Walker. Now, you know, there's a long way to go. Lindsey Graham was down there with Trump this weekend at Mar-a-Lago, or at least in Florida, urging him not to run. Lindsey Graham then last night puts out a, a tweet about, you know, what an incredible speech this was, because there's often this habit where people who are critical of Trump then publicly praise him lavishly so that they can get back on his good side. And so we haven't done seeing that dynamic yet, but there's definitely a shift. What about Trump himself, though? Because watching that speech last night, we watched it together, that versus Trump in 2016, big difference. It was uh, pretty subdued. And, and what I would say wasn't difference was the grievance, the sort of I alone can fix it attitude that we have seen him say over and over again, uh, and claiming that he finished things that he didn't finish when he was president, uh, making statements about how his presidency went uh, in ways that it didn't go. There was a sort of playing the old hits sense of this. So in that way, it was a lot like 2016. But I agree with you. This is not somebody who seemed like he's raring to go again. This is not somebody. Now, some of that might have been Caitlin because they knew that uh, networks would not take him live if he was yelling, if he was talking about the 2020 election over and over again. I think there was a real effort to keep him from doing that so the cameras would stay on him. Uh, and then as the cameras went off, you saw him sort of slide away from that. He doesn't seem happy. He just seems angry. It felt like the colorized version of your favorite movie where you're like, why on earth did they do this? And I mean, just the reaction from all of us, because believe it or not, we like all text each other, right? Was that it was there was an energy that was not there. And the reaction from people that I, you know, were texting me and in the room with saying this is so low energy. What happened? I mean, it feels like a movie like I've seen this before. And I really don't want to see it again. It was so low energy that Jeb Bush called it low energy <laughs> on Twitter, which was um, which was one of the, the the knife twists that we saw from a bunch of people last night. But it was, and part of that, Don, is because it was a it was a, a speech. It was a teleprompter speech, and he never does well with a teleprompter speech. He always has this. Uh, Maggie, part I think it was something beyond that. I agree I, with you that it was yeah. something beyond that. But I think that when that is the setup, that is always a recipe for not doing well for him. Look, I, I've been saying for months, uh, you know, his heart is not in this, and I do think that you saw that last night. He really wants to be president again. He wants the power of the office. He wants the protection from investigations. I don't think he wants to go do the work for two more years. This is the earliest that he has declared a presidential candidacy in the last three that we have seen him run. And this is a long time. He clearly wants to be Grover Cleveland, but there are so many differences in terms of defying history. The only, you know, former president who's done this. A Democrat, but also won the popular vote, I think, like every time. And I, I just wonder, you've said, Maggie, there is nothing you could learn about Trump that would surprise you. That's quite did, literally and, true. Did yes. even, so nothing last night surprised you? No, because not, last night was, again, it was a, a litany of things that we've actually heard him say over and over again. I mean, I think part of why people were not so roused by the speech is that it, it felt very familiar, you know, and then particularly when he gets to the part about he literally said, I'm a victim. He was talking about the investigations into him. And I was that was the one thing I wasn't surprised, but I was struck by it because that is something you're going to hear over and over again. He went head on into the investigations into him. And he brought up the Kim Jong-un letter yes, that he is under investigation yes, yes. for taking to Mar-a-Lago. That really yes. stood out to me because he's yeah. literally under investigation for that. The other thing, though, is and Ivanka Trump... Look at what's Trump, happening with Ukraine in the background, right? Remember the, the other reason that he was... The first, involved, the first impeachment, right? yeah. yeah. Ukraine happening yep. as... And he, he came out and said Russia yeah. fired the missile. That's not true. Right. Um, 
Ivanka Trump put out a statement saying that she's not going to be involved. She said she supports her father. She loves him. She said she's not going to be involved in politics this time around. Were you surprised by that? What'd you make of that? I wasn't surprised by that. I know that, you know, she, I think, has, look, the, the Trumps in general as a family, to varying degrees, like press coverage. She's much more like her father than, than frankly, uh, you know, some of her other siblings in that respect. And so I think she wanted a news story about what she was doing. But I do think that she had a pretty hard time at the end of the administration. You know, she was there on January 6th with her father. She was uh, is widely credited for, with, by people who were there with being one of the people who got him to eventually tell the rioters at the Capitol to go home. And I think that she felt sort of burned by the experience. Now, you know, we've never really seen a history before where you have individual staff members putting out their own statements about what they're going to do. Um, but it is a reminder that he is going into this campaign in a different way than he was last time. Just, you know, earlier this morning, Axios reported Jonathan Swan um, that that Steve Schwartzman, uh, the CEO yeah. of Blackstone, is not going to be with Trump. Steve Schwartzman is one of the few donors Trump had left. So that is actually a really I big I kept deal. wondering, what's he going to do? Yep. Yeah. What is Schwartzman going to do? Now we, know. Are, now we know. Now we know. leaving. Hey, just real quickly, I have to ask you for something. Please follow up on this. It struck me when you said his heart is not in it. And maybe it's a very simple answer. Is it just because he can't help himself? Why? Needs the attention, needs the protection of the investigations, and uh, very much misses the power that the office had. It's really that simple. Yeah. Thank you, Maggie. Thank Appreciate you. it. Fascinating as always. Tonight, former Vice President Mike Pence, who could be a Trump challenger, will join Jake Tapper for a live scene in town hall. Make sure you tune in. It's at 9 p.m. Eastern right here on CNN. So this is a fascinating story that Poppy has been educating all of us oh, on. Oh, please. Says, oh, you know <laughs> the inside, the ins and outs of this. Sam Bankman fried is, in his own words, fried, I guess, what the former crypto king is now saying about his fall from the top. And why Taylor Swift fans have bad blood with Ticketmaster. Lawmakers also now voicing their own displeasure. More CNN this morning to come after the break. Every day this summer, I heard this song like about 80 times, and I loved it. I played it. Talk about a renaissance. Beyonce has made Grammy history again. Wow. Renaissance, her first solo album in six years, picked up nine nominations for the 2023 awards, making her the top nominee this year. It also ties her with her husband, rapper Jay-Z as the artist with the most Grammy nominations of all time. Her nine nods this year, along with Jay-Z's five, puts the couple at a whopping 88 nominations each. Goodness gracious. Beyonce overtaking Sir Paul Paul McCartney. Quincy Jones and Kanye West. Uh, Queen B or Queen Bay. Look, don't get mad at me, Beehive. I don't, it's a Queen B or Queen Bay. I'm a fan. <laughs> Already won more Grammys than any woman in history. A record 28. If she were to win four more this year, she'd become the most awarded artist. And the Grammys will also be must-watch TV. Beyonce will square off with another powerhouse singer. She's going to face Adele in three major categories, setting up a rematch of the 2017 awards. Remember this moment? but I can't possibly accept this award. And I'm very humbled and I'm very grateful and gracious, but my artist of my life is Beyonce and this album for me, the Lemonade album was just so monumental, Beyonce. It was so monumental. 
Oh, that's, that's so nice. how you that's do how, it. When I sit here every morning, I think the same thing about <laughs> these. I get to sit here with you guys. It's so monumental. <laughs> Who's it? You're Adele. <laughs> We're gonna have to. That's what he says every. It's what he says every commercial. People. Beyonce. I like to call her Beyonce. Just as a like. She pretend I know is. Her. She's amazing. Uh, Force. That's yeah, so both great of them. to see. Both of them. She is both of them. Both yes. of them. Speaking okay. of forces in the crypto industry. Right? Yes. So crypto in crisis, you guys know this, as the collapse of one of its biggest players is partly to blame. Sam Bankman-Fried built FTX into a huge crypto exchange valued at $32 billion over just three years. Well, last week it imploded, sending aftershocks throughout the industry. He issued a mea culpa on Twitter Thursday saying, I'm sorry, I effed up. I should have done better. On Friday morning, he resigned as CEO announced the firm's going into bankruptcy. And now some comments he made months ago when he was considered a white knight in the industry, they have not aged well. Listen. I'm not concerned about more regulation. I think getting consumer protection in areas where there is not currently enough can be extremely helpful for a robust ecosystem. I think it's just important to do so in a way that fits the product. We should hopefully end up in a world in which you know, we're not the ones making financial decisions on behalf of our users, um, you know, we want to offer the products that there's demand for. I'm going to be here for the long term. I have no plans to leave. Um, you know, that is not something that is on my horizon. And, uh, you know, I would not be uh, I would not be, you know, spending a lot of my energy looking at, at a you know, succession planning that was not going to come into effect. Here. here with us now, someone he actually spoke to, New York Times crypto reporter David Yaffe. Bellany, he's interviewed Sam Bankman-Fried, and it's a hard interview to get, and he told you it could have been worse. When I read your piece, first of all, congrats on getting the interview. When I read your piece, I thought two things. I thought hubris, and I, it reminded me of move fast and break things. What do you think? I mean, it was interesting window into his state of mind during this um, incredible crisis that's, you know, hurt hundreds of thousands of people, that's destabilized the industry, that's cost him his reputation and his fortune practically overnight. I mean, he sounded remarkably relaxed to me. I was kind of shocked by his tone at certain points. Um, at the end of the interview, he was joking about these cryptic tweets that he was posting, talking about the video games that he was playing. I mean, um, he was certainly repentant and at times seemed almost kind of agonized by what had happened. But um, the overall tone was really kind of peculiar. He didn't sound like somebody whose life had just been ruined. If you, you know, the, the catch line for this show is bringing the world home. Why are people, if people are sitting in New York, if they're sitting in Iowa, if they're sitting uh, in Minnesota or Louisiana or Alabama, or why should they care about what this young kid is doing or has done? Um, so this guy was kind of a self-styled crypto diplomat. Um, his whole plan was to kind of bring crypto to the masses, to try to explain it to people, to kind of represent himself as the non-scammy end of the industry, and to really kind of bring this kind of experimental technology into the mainstream. Um, he testified in Congress. He was a growing force in um, Democratic circles, a huge donor to Joe Biden and to other politicians over the years. Um, and also someone who is kind of uh, trying to style himself as a major philanthropist. And so his, his, his fall, um, you know, ripples kind of far outside the, the crypto world. Just one more thing I'm going to ask. I, I was um, speaking with people who are in the finance industry, right, and know about these things. And they still don't understand, you know, what's crypto themselves and they work in the industry <laughs> and, so, and, well and plus they're like this is not it's all so weird because it's not regulated or whatever I mean, what is your answer to that what is this 
Um, I mean, that's the $10,000 question. I think crypto is really poorly explained by the people who work in it. Um, it is genuinely very complicated to understand. And I think the industry is still sort of grasping for a real kind of practical application beyond the sort of casino style gambling that um, Sam's company um, sort of offered to the, to the masses. Um, and I think that's why regular people have trouble grasping it because really there hasn't, they haven't, the industry has not articulated what the technology does particularly clearly. Yeah. But we've also heard from crypto experts that the warning signs were there. Like, yes, it is difficult to understand. Maybe it does need to be more regulated than it is. But people say, we could see this coming. But I was just so fascinated because you're someone who spoke with him when very few people have spoken with him. He has said very little publicly. And he just doesn't seem to have had any regrets about this. I don't think that's entirely fair. I mean, he, he expressed <clears throat> numerous regrets to me. You know, he apologized. He said he feels horrible about the damage that this has done. Um, but the, the tone was sort of discordant with that at times. I mean, he sounded, he sounded relaxed. He was, he was laughing at times. Um, it was, a, it was a strange experience speaking to him. Um, but, uh, but, but, you know, I do, I do think that there's some, some level of regret. Now he's caused immense damage though. And so an apology isn't going to cut it for most people. Right. And frankly, it shouldn't. But regret, is he, is he worried though about regulations, about investigations, the SDNY? Is, is there concern on his part about that or is he just brushing it off? I, I asked him, how do you feel about the prospect of going to prison? Because that's certainly on the table here. Yeah. I mean, he's being investigated by SDNY. You know, legal experts say that based on what he's accused of doing, it sounds like, you know, he committed a crime. Um, and he wouldn't, he wouldn't go there. He wouldn't comment on that. Potentially by using no his comment? customers' he money said, to prop up the hedge fund part of it. Yeah. He, said, he said, I'm not going to talk on the record about that. that was I, it. Hmm. I am so struck and troubled by the fact that it's still not regulated. So we, we've asked for the SEC chair, uh, Gensler, to come on. He's mm -hmm. welcome any day. Um, Sheila Bear is going to join us this week, who is former head of the FDIC, who's compared this to Madoff in a sense. Um, how is it that this can be so risky for so many people across the country, as you said, and regulators don't have a handle on it? And why is it so hard to regulate it just seems like Washington's way behind the ball. I mean, government, government moves slowly, um, especially on new technology. I mean, that's a historic problem. It's not specific to crypto at all. Um, it's like the Internet, right? The same thing. And there's, and there's debate. No, but there's you wouldn't put planes in the air uh, without regulating them. You yeah, don't put yeah. things out there that can... But I'm saying my analysis is that the Internet it moves so fast. Yeah. It happened yeah. so quickly that it was tough yeah. for people to regulate. I mean, really, the equivalent metaphor is if, like, someone in their backyard launched a plane into the air and suddenly the government was like, there are planes flying everywhere. We have to figure out what to do about them. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's there's a struggle in Washington now between different factions yes. that disagree over how this is. I just think a lot of regulated. people wouldn't get on that plane. A lot of people are on this plane. But the, the a lot similar of people are thing. on it. <laughs> it did happen with drones, right? That had to, and they had to oh, figure yeah. out how do, how do we deal with these drones that are... Do you feel like he has a strategy for how um, to handle this? I really, I really don't think so. Um, I mean, last week he was scrambling to line up new financing before the bankruptcy filing to kind of prop up his company and, and kind of keep it alive. And he, he tweeted yesterday that he's still trying to do that, even though he's no longer chief executive. He's facing all these investigations. He's been kind of widely maligned, you know, by his own employees, by executives he used to work with. Um, so I don't know. I think that there's, there's maybe a little bit of kind of magical thinking going on there if he thinks that he can, he can turn this around. But, you know, he's got good white-collar lawyers, you know, working for him now, and I'm sure he's getting, you know, good advice from somebody. That's who always gets paid in these things. Maybe this will be the, the lawyers. thing that gets him to pay attention to regulate. Yeah, yeah, it does. Thank you. Your reporting was so good. Thanks we so much. We appreciate you being on very much. All right, speaking of tech giants, Elon Musk, with a new warning to his staff, his employees this morning, telling them in an email to commit to me, quote, hardcore or be fired. 
Plus, CNN This Morning is live in Poland and in Brussels, Belgium at the NATO headquarters as we learn that it was likely Ukrainian forces, not Russian forces, that fired that missile into Poland yesterday. Our coverage continues ahead. Up and Adam, everyone. Top of the hour. Good morning to you. It is Wednesday, November 1-6-16. And there is a lot going on this morning. We need to get right to it, including new information about who may have launched that missile into Poland. Two people were killed in the blast, and multiple foreign officials are saying it could have been an accident. We're going to have full discussion with the former defense secretary, Mark Esper, in moments. Plus, the New York Post describes it as, quote, a Florida man made an announcement last night. That is very telling from the Post how conservatives are reacting to Donald Trump's third bid for the White House. And a historic leap forward for NASA's moon program. The Artemis One rocket successfully launched this morning after some late drama on the launch pad. We're going to begin with the breaking news, though. U.S. officials confirming it was likely Ukrainian forces, not Russia, who were responsible for the deadly missile strike that killed two people in Poland. Russia denied any involvement from the outset. And now Poland's president just declared that he believes the tragedy was probably an accident. Polish authorities are still investigating the incident. Our Matthew Chance joins us live from the Polish uh, village where this all happened. Melissa Bell also standing by for us this morning at NATO headquarters in Brussels. But Matthew, first, good morning to you. You've made it there with your team. What can you tell us? Yeah, that's right. Well, I mean, it's still a very tight security operation here. We can't get any closer than this, a couple of hundred yards away from where the missile struck and, and exploded and caused that damage and really set the world on edge because there were concerns that this could have been a, a deliberate or a deliberate accident by Russia to strike a NATO country. That does not, fortunately, seem to be the case right now because we're getting a, you know, a whole load of officials from the United States, from, from Europe and from Poland as well, that are suggesting that this is more likely to have been a, a Ukrainian missile that, um, that, that struck this territory of Poland and unfortunately killed those two people. You have to remember the context, though, and that's that when yesterday uh, this missile struck Polish territory, it was you know, uh, during a time when Ukraine itself was being absolutely bombarded with Russian missiles, cruise missiles, other types of missiles as well, across targets across the country, up to 100, uh, according to Ukrainian officials. And the Ukrainian military was desperately attempting to defend the country from those missile strikes. And so in that scenario, it's easy to imagine how a Ukrainian interceptor could have overshot its target and landed on Polish territory. And even though it's not been confirmed yet, because there are still experts on the ground trying to literally piece together exactly what happened, to piece together the bits of the missiles to get a, a definitive answer on this, the, the general view at the moment is tending towards that this was not a Russian-fired missile, but it was more likely to be a Ukrainian interceptor that overshot its target. And of course, you know, that, that's serious. Of course, it's terrible for the, for the people, the two people who were killed here. But it doesn't necessarily lead us down the road of broadening, fortunately, this conflict beyond Ukraine to potentially bring in the NATO military alliance. Matthew Chance on the ground for us. Thank you very much for that reporting. Caitlin. And on that note, leaders from the G7 and NATO are holding an emergency meeting this morning to discuss that missile that killed two people, as Matthew noted. Just moments ago, we heard from the head of the military alliance known as NATO addressing the incident, the explosion at a news conference. 
We have no indication that this was the result of a deliberate attack. And we have no indication that Russia is preparing offensive military actions against NATO. And CNN's Melissa Bell is live at the NATO headquarters. Melissa, that is a critical update that we are getting, that, that this does not appear to be any kind of deliberate attack here. That's right. Jen Stoltenberg speaking there, Caitlin, after that emergency meeting of ambassadors to NATO, the 30 ambassadors that represent its members. And of course, he was looking at that intelligence, which was their priority in order to understand what needed to be done next, whether Article 4, Article 5 needed to be invoked. And there's, of course, very reassuring words. Uh, Jen Stoltenberg went on to explain that what they believe as part of their preliminary investigation is that this was a Ukrainian air defense missile used to try and counter Russian cruise missiles. Of course, the investigation continues. But it was interesting to watch until we got that assessment, the very cautious language being used, not just by President Biden speaking in Bali before he left there uh, at that G20 summit, uh, but all the other leaders of the countries involved because, of course, of the dangers uh, of what we've long suspected could happen, a mistake, uh, a missile overshooting its target, uh, something that could bring this NATO alliance into direct confrontation with Russia. Now, this has increased calls from those uh, countries on the eastern flank of NATO for something they've long been asking for, which is a no-fly zone, immediately batted back by Germany, uh, which believes with other NATO members that this would bring uh, NATO forces in much more direct contact with Russian air forces, which could, of course, bring uh, mistakes of their own. So for the time being, no suggestion there's going to be a bolstering defences on the eastern flank. Uh, more than that, what we've heard from Jen Stoltenberg and other officials here, Caitlin, beyond that assessment, are calls for calm, for acting uh, together, but in a very measured way and trying not to escalate the rhetoric or indeed the military buildup itself, Caitlin. Yeah, certainly a welcome relief for a lot of these leaders. Melissa Bell, thanks for that update. I want to bring in now the former defense secretary under President Trump, Mark Esper. Uh, secretary, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. This is important. Let's get to the most important part here, and that is that NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg is saying Wednesday that there is no indication that Poland, uh, that the missile that landed in Poland, that it was intentional. Uh, it, was a, it was not the result of the deliberate act. They don't believe at this point. They think it was an accident. What's your assessment? Well, that was my suspicion yesterday afternoon when I when I spoke on on your network then that it was likely a accidental Russian firing into Poland and then second maybe a spillover from a Ukrainian uh, air defense system that was trying to knock down the missiles and drones that were fired indiscriminately into into uh, Ukraine yesterday. So I'm glad to hear that they've done the investigatory work and they've concluded mostly it seems at this point that it was an accident uh, fired by a Ukrainian air defense system. So there has been talk about Article 4, but nothing yet. So where does this put those discussions about invoking Article 4? I don't think it's necessary at this point. If, if the determination has been that it's an accident caused by Ukrainian air defense, I would stand down on that. I do think it's important to make assessments about uh, going forward. How do we prevent such accidents? I think there needs to be a discussion clearly between Ukraine and, and NATO about the uh, about the air defense systems. I mean, look, if uh, Ukraine is using uh, old Russian air defense systems, so an S-300 missile, for example, can travel uh, over 90 miles. And Lviv, uh, which was probably targeted, is only 40 miles from the Russian border. So do the math. I think we, there needs to be a discussion about uh, air defense placements. And I think there needs to be a continued discussion about the United States uh, and its NATO allies providing more and more capable air defense systems 
to the Ukrainians to defend uh, against this uh, unwarranted Russian onslaught. And Jevodova is right there. I mean, it's literally on the border. It is a border town. Right. That's right. I was there uh, in 2018 to see U.S. forces and allied forces training Ukrainians. And arguably, I think it's been uh, made the difference, all the difference here in the conflict. But look, it's very close. And when you're shooting missiles, if they go up and they miss, they're going to come down somewhere. And so I'm, I'm just surprised this hasn't happened earlier, frankly. Secretary, thank you very much for being with us this morning. I'm going to ask you a question that, that Caitlin asked Senator Chris Murphy, who's on the Foreign Relations Committee, that I think is really important. And that is, uh, do you think it's important for President Zelensky to come out and publicly uh, acknowledge what intelligence now indicates this was to make it very clear for people to hear it from him? You know, absolutely. I think, uh, look, I, I think he should come out and speak to it. I think he should apologize. And I think there needs to be some discussion as well with regard to what are, are reparations for the families who were tragically harmed in Ukraine uh, by this. And I think he, there needs to be a discussion too at the technical level about how do we prevent this from happening in the, in the, in the future. So the, regards to the placement of, of Ukrainian air defense systems, where they aim those systems, you know, what is the range of those systems? Because again, um, uh, these are long range uh, weapons that can travel far. And at some point, if you miss, they're gonna fall. And, and uh, we wanna prevent other accidents and tragedies in the future. And I wonder if you think this changes the war in Ukraine at all, because the Ukrainians indicated this morning that we wouldn't be in this scenario if it weren't for Russia, right? And so regardless of who, and it's important there's clarity about who and what and why and how, but do you think this fundamentally changes the conflict? I, I don't. Look, it's, they're right that they wouldn't, we wouldn't be in a situation of war for the Russian attack that began what, nine months ago, uh, but we are where we are. And I don't think it fundamentally changes it. The fact is, you know, we know the Ukrainians are desperate for NATO to get more involved and we understand why. But uh, I think the important thing now is to look ahead. Uh, we need to help the Ukrainians defeat this Russian on onslaught of their infrastructure, particularly their energy infrastructure, because Vladimir Putin's trying to do a few things. He's trying to break the will of the Ukrainian people heading into the winter. He's trying to uh, to, to get uh, NATO to buckle uh, with regard to energy supplies. And I think the more we can help the Ukrainians defend themselves, which means urgently rushing a variety of uh, uh, short range, middle, middle, medium range and long range air defense systems to that country, we can help the Ukrainians defend themselves, defend their infrastructure, and then allow them to continue the tactical um, uh, offensive uh, to push Russia out of their territory. Mm. Secretary Esper, in addition to those developments last night, you also saw another development happening in Florida when it comes to your former boss, former President Trump, announcing he is running for president. What's your reaction? I, I wish he wouldn't. I think he's unfit for office. Uh, I thought his remarks were very subdued and uninspiring. And I think uh, that it's time for the Republican Party and frankly, both parties to move on to a next generation of leaders and particularly the leaders that can unify our country and get us back to a, a more normal governance where we treat each other with dignity and respect and we work on policy issues and not on personal attacks. What would you say to any of your former colleagues who might go work for him again, either in his campaign or if he is ultimately reelected? Well, my message to all Republicans has been all along. Look, there, there were accomplishments in the Trump administration, uh, uh, better border security, conservative judges, lower taxes, deregulation. Uh, I think that you can get all those things with a new generation of Republican leaders who maybe are more in line with what I consider myself a Reagan Republican, who can do so without the baggage and the personal attacks and the self-centeredness of Donald Trump, and that can really lead our nation forward. And look, can grow the Republican base as well. 
The election last week was an example of Donald Trump is incapable of winning elections. He's done more to help the Democrats than he has Republicans. And there's no reason why we shouldn't have a, a bigger margin in the House. And we should we should have taken uh, the Senate. And yet we haven't. And so I think uh, if you want to govern, if you want to govern consistent with conservative principles, then you have to win elections. And Donald Trump can't win elections. Who, you do, you said, think, who do you think can win an election? Governor Ron DeSantis, what Republicans do you want to see run? I think there are a number of candidates out there who who continue to announce. Uh, uh, you know, DeSantis obviously at the top is at the top of that list right now. He did a great job in Florida. Uh, he brought his, more Hispanics on board, so he appears to me to be the front runner. But I think we need to have a primary, and we need to see who emerges and who can really again republic rally Republicans, grow the base, and really reach to independents and others out there across the country. Uh, and and allow Republicans to return to the White House in 2024. You said you think he's unfit for office. Why? Oh, well, look, it's uh, he, he puts himself before country. Um, his actions are all about him and not about uh, not about the country. And we saw last week it, it were about him and not about the party. So uh, to me, that's uh, that's shortcoming, number one. And then, of course, I, I believe he has integrity and character issues as well. Like, what do you mean? Well, I don't think he's an honest person. Uh, I, I think he, you know, we, we saw the falsehoods that came out of his remarks last night uh, with regard to this. And Americans need a, a leader that they can trust, that they have confidence in, that is that is putting them above, uh, you know, an individual's own self-interest. And that's what we need from leadership. That's what uh, I've mentioned Ronald Reagan. That's what Ronald Reagan gave us. Thank you, Defense Secretary. We appreciate you joining us. The former Defense Secretary. Thank you. Mark Thank you very much. After months of setbacks, it finally happened while you were sleeping. The Artemis One mission finally took flight overnight and is paving the way for the first man trip to the moon. I should say woman trip to the moon in more than 50 years. We will geek out with an astrophysicist, Jan 11 ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Christian, with the excitement and the bad words. What, didn't you say a bad word this morning, too, Papa? No, <laughs> no I, I told someone else not to say a bad All right. word. <laughs> uh, she's overjoyed. I mean, listen, it is pretty exciting. I said to her earlier that I was jealous of her assignment. Overjoyed this morning when NASA launched a historic mission, finally la launching the Artemis One mission following several days of delays, or several delays, I should say, the unmanned spacecraft is set to take a trip to the moon and beyond. Over the next 25 days, paving the way for astronauts to set step foot on the moon for the first time in 50 years. As soon as 2024, NASA already sharing images captured by the spacecraft, mm. including these incredible views of the Earth. Joining our conversation now is Jan Eleven, an astrophysicist and astronomy professor at Columbia. She's that means she's really smart because <laughs> she's also an author of the book Black Hole Survival Guide. So thank you so much for joining me. We appreciate it. Good morning. It's, Thanks for having it me. Be, like, it, 
excited about this, right? I'm very excited. I don't think they're going to encounter a black hole, but that's yeah. okay. I, I want to ask you, um, you know, I was, I, it was weird. I had to do a story mm -hmm. uh, in my previous life at night mm -hmm. about set, stepping foot on the moon. And people forget, I forget, like, we haven't been on the moon in a long time. So long, 50 this years. This is really, really important. Yeah, it's a very exciting time because we're also thinking about staying on the moon. Hmm. So a lot of this is really preparation to figure out if we can use minerals and resources on the moon to build things while we're there. And not always to bring modular things all the way to the moon, but actually build them. Isn't the ultimate goal here of the Artemis, because there's Artemis mm -hmm. one, and then Artemis three will bring humans, yeah. first woman, first person of color to the moon. It's ultimately about Mars, right? Yeah, a lot of this is about an ambition to go to Mars. And uh, Mars is pretty inhospitable. It doesn't have a good magnetic field to protect us from dangerous rays and we don't think we have enough fuel to come back. So you really have to go to Mars with the intention of surviving there somehow, with the conditions that are available, which is gonna be a big challenge. So in the meantime, we're gonna set up kind of a way station around the moon to be able to begin to see if we can live on can, other can celestial bodies. Yeah. You said yeah. the conditions that are available. What do you mean by that? Well, Mars doesn't have the same atmosphere, obviously, and because it doesn't have a lot of protection from the sun's uh, rays, it's actually very damaging to human DNA oh. to be on the Martian surface. And it is quite far. It's, uh, you know, 50 million miles away. And so it's much harder to uh, send enough fuel to get people back. So people are concerned about a one-way ticket to Mars. Yeah. So the idea is to give them a ticket back yeah, <laughs> and, and to create an environment where robots and humans can, can build a station on Mars itself. And there's also... We'll try the moon first. A geopolitical aspect to this, right, of what other nations are also trying to do. It's not just the United yeah. States. And I know you've had some concerns about China and, and what they're trying to do when it comes to essentially setting up camp on the moon. Yeah, it's very interesting because we were in a space race in the 50s and 60s and 70s during a Cold War mostly with the Soviet Union, and, and that provoked an incredible amount of anxiety that the Russians were the first to launch anything into space. Sputnik is a little volleyball. Um, of course, Americans got to the moon and landed on the moon, and that's tremendous. But right now we're in the same kind of attention, where there's a tension between political parties that don't want to work together. So there is, in fact, an Artemis Accord, which is an attempt to get a bunch of countries into the same attitude about having a peaceful exploration of space and making it an international collaboration. And China's resistant to that. Mm. Yeah. So we'll see. Awesome. Yeah. Space, the final space. frontier. <laughs> Thank you. So the Thanks so much for having me. Artemis Two. Yeah. You should narrate the long <laughs> Apollo's sister. Yeah, as we send that. a woman to, to the moon. I can't Boldly wait to go show. where other men have gone before, but not for a long time. <laughs> Thank you. It was a pleasure having you here. Thank you for really having appreciate me. Appreciate it. All right, to politics now. A Republican Senate showdown. Mitch McConnell facing a challenge to his leadership from Florida Senator Rick Scott. That was fantastic. I'm obsessed with Would you like to go to space? Would you like to go to the moon? And then. All right, the Republican Civil War moving to the Senate this morning. Florida Senator Rick Scott has announced a bid to challenge Mitch McConnell for the top GOP leadership role that he has held for the last 15 years. Scott saying that, quote, a big change is needed and it's time for new leadership in the Senate. McConnell says this. I think the outcome is pretty clear. I want to repeat again. Uh, I have the votes. I will be elected. The tension between the two senators is heating up as the GOP's shortcoming in the midterm elections is on full display.
Well, I never predicted a red wave. We never saw that in any of our polling. Here's what happened to us. Election day, our voters didn't show up. We didn't get enough voters. It's a complete disappointment. It's pretty obvious, and all of you have been writing about it, uh, what happened. We underperformed among independents and moderates because their impression of many of the people in our party in leadership roles is that they're involved in chaos, negativity, uh, excessive uh, attacks. What are we running on? What do we stand for? What are we hell bent to get done? What we, you know, you know, there's no plan to do that. The leadership in the, in the Republican Senate says, "We know you cannot have a plan. We're just going to run against how bad the Democrats are." And actually, then they cave into the Democrats. The Republican leadership caved in on the debt ceiling, caved in on a gun bill, caved in on a fake infrastructure bill, and then we make it difficult for our candidates. Candidate quality, recall, I said in August, is important. And in most of our states, we've met that test. In a few of them, we did not. Joining us now, Dana Bash, CNN chief political correspondent and co-anchor of State of the Union. Dana, yes. you know as well as I know, usually I'm so Rick's... happy you're here. Hi. <laughs> I, 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 just, I just love well, Dana Can Bash. I, but I, I gotta... It's, it's mutual. I'm so happy to <laughs> Sorry, be here. Go on. I gotta say, you know as well as I do. That was in. And, and typically, yeah. standing right over Mitch McConnell's shoulder is one Rick Scott. Mm -hmm. I noticed he was not there yesterday. Disinvited. Disinvited. It wasn't an accident. He was disinvited after they had uh, words in, in a private <clears throat> meeting, their, their, uh, their lunch, that the Senate Republicans had. Look, what you just heard, first of all, that was so well done because it really illustrates. You have pretty great producers on this team, yeah, if you hadn't I, noticed. I, I did notice. Yeah. Uh, really <laughs> illustrates what uh, the, the divide is. The divide is between Mitch McConnell, who is arguing facts, and the facts are that the candidates who, a lot of the candidates who lost were uh, supported by Donald Trump, supported the whole notion of election lies and, and everything that has to do with the past and not necessarily the future. Not all of them, but a lot of them. And what Rick Scott is talking about is Donald Trump's talking points. And it's not just Donald Trump. It's the base's talking points. It's what he was criticizing McConnell for was legislating, infrastructure, uh, other issues that he worked across the aisle with the Democrats on. And that is where the Republican Party is right now. They, the base doesn't want any to give even an inch to Joe Biden, and that is why one of the reasons why they're very mad at Mitch McConnell. The other main reason is because Donald Trump is mad at Mitch McConnell and attacks him all the time, sometimes with pretty racist language about his wife, and so they're following suit. Speaking of not giving an inch, I mean, the, the New York Post barely gave an inch to the former president's announcement. That's you see amazing. That? Do you see that, what it says? Florida said? man makes an announcement. Okay, but that's it's not the... the that's it's not like the, size 12 no, no. font, but So Florida it's not man. on page 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. It's on page 26. Uh -huh. And it says, Ben... I, I just, please, just give me a moment, producer Reese's. Read this. Been there, Don that, D-O-N that. Um, with just 720 days to go before the next election, a Florida retiree made the surprise announcement Tuesday night that he was running for president. In a move no political pundit saw coming, avid uh, golfer Donald J. Trump kicked things off at Mar-a-Lago, oh his God. resort and classified documents library. <laughs> Trump, famous for gold-plated lobbies and for 
firing people on reality television will be 78 in 2024. If elected, Trump would tie Joe Biden as the oldest president to take office. His cholesterol levels are unknown. Oh my God. But his favorite food is a charred steak with ketchup. Not the onion. He has stated that his qualifications for office include being a stable genius, in quotes. Trump also served as the 45th president. Post-staff report. Okay. That's it. No name. <laughs> That, that's that's a, a little much, but we get the point. But, I mean, so making the, a point. the point is it's the post. No, we get the point. Exactly. Yeah. The point is Rupert it's Rupert Murdoch uh, in, in a, a, a newspaper that um, the former, you know, he loves it. He is a, even though he is a Florida man, he is a New Yorker <laughs> and uh, relied on not just that publication, but other Murdoch media outlets. So where does this place him? Between the between the people who love him and they're trying to ice him out. Ah. They are trying to ice him out. And I am still not convinced that that's going to happen. It's possible. I mean, how many hours did you spend covering the Trump White House? Do you think I don't think it's healthy to count? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I just I think it is it is possible. It is definitely a new time. Um, there's so many factors that are unknown right now that will determine whether or not Donald Trump will be iced out of not just the Republican Party, but more importantly, in the short term, of the Republican nomination for president. And the conservative Republican ecosystem media, right? The, the Rupert Murdoch sort of led establishment media, I should say. Right. And they're trying. Yeah. They're trying. I mean, they're they're making an effort like we have not seen before, even, I should say, after there was an insurrection and even after he tried to effectively stage a coup to keep control of uh, of the country, the presidency, even after he lost, they didn't go this far. But now that Republicans lost more than they expected to lose, now that this is their answer. It's very interesting what kind of gets them going and doesn't. You make me smile. That's it? Yes, I love having you. The energy level and the knowledge that you bring. Thank you very much for that. It's good to always get to see you, especially in person. Looking sharp in the velvet. I'm coming back here. Compliments. Thanks, DB. Thanks, guys. Good to see you. You too. All right. Speaking of Trump's run for this morning's number, let's bring in our buddy Harry Enten. This is historic. Only been done once before in very different circumstances. Yeah, it is historic. You know, Today's number is one. It is one. Presidents who serve non-consecutive terms. Grover Cleveland is the only one. He did it all the way back in the 19th century. And keep in mind, when he lost the first time around, he actually won the popular vote. Very different than Trump, who never actually won the popular vote. There have, of course, been a number of presidents who failed in bids for non-consecutive terms. Martin Van Buren, Millard Fillmore, Ulysses S. Grant. Theodore Roosevelt, who ran as a third-party Bull Moose candidate back in the early 20th century. So there are far more of the failures than succeeds in terms of running again. And just to give you some perspective of where Donald Trump stands in the overall electorate at this point, favorable view or approve of Donald Trump, you'll notice that the 39% in our 2022 exit poll is significantly lower than in 2020 was when he was at 46 or in 2018 when he was at 45 Of course, of course, there's the big question about the Republican primary. And I think this number perhaps gives you a little insight into the Republican mindset. So this is among Florida Republicans. Keep in mind, Trump now does, in fact, live in Florida. Do you want to see this person run for president in 2024? 
76% of Florida Republicans say yes to Ron DeSantis compared to 61 for Donald Trump. So Trump is still popular among Republicans, but I'm going to be very interested once Republicans nationwide get to know Ron DeSantis a little bit better, perhaps they'll prefer his brand of Republicanism to Donald Trump's. What did he say, DeSantis? Scoreboard? Scoreboard. Check the scoreboard. Check the scoreboard from Tuesday night. There's that. Harry, thank you. Thank you. Be sure to tune in tonight. Former Vice President Mike Pence will join our very own Jake Tapper for a CNN town hall. It is 9 p.m. Eastern right here. There is bad blood brewing between Taylor Swift fans and Ticketmaster after the website crashed on the day the first ticket for Swift's, Swift's tour went on sale while lawmakers are getting involved. That's next. When you're in their top five. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. As former President Trump announces his third run for the White House, there are questions of whether President Biden should be the one to take him on in 2024. Let's talk about that and a whole lot more with House Majority Whip James Clyburn of South Carolina. He's the third ranking Democrat in the House of Representatives. Thank you, sir, very much for your time. And good morning. Thanks for waking up early. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you. Look, we all know. And you remind us that everyone said you were wrong in 2020 when you put everything behind Biden and you were sure he was the one who could beat Trump and you were right. And I wonder what your reaction is to Trump's announcement last night that he's running again. And if that makes you even more confident that it should be Biden who takes him on. Well, I doubt very seriously that um, we are going to uh, have uh, that is a contest. Uh, we'll let the Republicans uh, go at each other and make a decision. But uh, Biden, in my opinion, is best for us Democrats, irrespective of who may be put up on the other side. You have never seen in the midterm uh, the kind of success uh, that we have just had. And that's due in large measure uh, to the agenda and the approach of Joe Biden. Joe Biden was exactly the personality uh, that was needed uh, for us uh, to come back from this pandemic. Uh, and uh, he put forth an agenda uh, that was perfect for us to run on. And those of us who ran on that agenda uh, were very, very successful. And I do believe that we can build upon that because so much that's in that agenda really kicks in come January. Mm -hmm. If you look at the uh, cap on insulin, uh, that was just a promise uh, during this campaign. It's going to be a reality uh, come January. Same thing with negotiating uh, for the price of medicine uh, for people on Medicare. Uh, And there's a lot in the infrastructure bill that's going to be blooming next year this time. And so I just think that people uh, will see uh, the real effects of the Biden agenda, and it's going to be great uh, for us to run on. Let me see if I can uh, just ask you this question in a different way, and I promise I'll get off of this, okay? Just because I want a clear, concise answer. If there was one person who you believe would increase the chances of Joe Biden winning in 2024, would that person be (laughs) Donald Trump? (laughs) Well, you know, I'm a history guy. Yeah. uh, And I do believe that history is instructive. And so when I look at the history of Biden versus Trump, that is instructive to me. Uh, If he's done it before, he can do it again. Thank you. 
I've got a question that a lot of Hill reporters want to know, which is it's been quite a week for politics and leadership on Capitol Hill. We've talked about the Republican side. There are big questions, though, of what's going to happen on the Democratic side. And you're number three in the Democratic caucus right now. And so a question has been if Pelosi does not run to be the House minority leader, are you going to support Hakeem Jeffries or Steny Hoyer for that role? Well, I don't know if there will be a contest between uh, the two of them. And that's a bridge uh, I will cross uh, when I get to it. I've talked to both of them, uh, to Hoyer uh, and uh, to, to Jeffries. Uh, in fact, the three of us were together last night at an event that I hosted for the new members. And we um, uh, had a, a good time together. And so I'm not going to uh, get involved in uh, making my choice uh, in this public way. Uh, but I have said to both of them, that I will not pursue uh, the position of leader of our party or speaker. Uh, it won't be a speaker for us, it looks like. Uh, so whoever uh, may be the candidates uh, for leader, uh, I uh, will make a choice uh, at the proper time, but I won't be a candidate for, for leader. When would you like to see Pelosi make her decision? Obviously she makes her own decisions, but when do you think is a, an appropriate time for that decision to be made? I don't think there's any real appropriate time to make a decision like that. I know that um, these races have not been declared. I think you all have given that as the most uh, optimistic caption. I think you said 217, but you need 218 to control. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you have not gotten beyond uh, 217 yet, I think that uh, everybody should keep their powder dry until such time as it's official uh, that we will not. Uh, be in the majority. Though those of us who've been watching these things for years, uh, we do believe it would be very, very, very difficult uh, for us to maintain the majority, mm -hmm. uh, that is the Democrats. Uh, and so uh, maybe once it's official, uh, then people ought to uh, make their intentions known. But you did just say you think it won't be, you said it, uh, it won't be a, um, a speaker for us, it looks like. You just said that and we had the map up. Look, and I yeah, know... that's the way it looks. Okay, but you look, you did do better than you thought, but you, it looks like you're going to lose the speakership. So if you had sort of a post-mortem for the Democrats, because the Republicans were competitive in, in congressional races in many places across the country, even here in New York, that like no one thought that they would be. So what is your message there? What, 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 what are Democrats saying now? Like, what should we do? How are we going to change strategy and move forward? Well, we got to modify our approach in a lot of places. Look, we lost seats up in New York, as you said, that we had no idea we would lose. We got to take a look at that and see why did we lose mm -hmm. uh, and do better the next time. There are seats out in California that it looks like we are not going to be successful in uh, that I thought we would be successful in. Now, having said that, we were successful in a lot of places that we did not think uh, we would be successful. Now. This vote came out pretty much the way I uh, thought it would. I said uh, to another network uh, the Sunday uh, before the election that you all are going to be in for a big surprise uh, come Tuesday night because I've been out there. I went into 24 congressional districts, and we won 22 of those seats. And the two of them that we lost, I am really uh, just, I don't know what to think about those two. Uh, they were tough races. We knew uh, that Luria... Uh, would have a big problem uh, in, um, uh, in Virginia, uh, but we didn't intend 
uh, to lose uh, by that margin mm -hmm. and send the accident uh, out in Iowa. I thought she would win uh, and, and she lost. So I'm taking a look at both those as well. Not just where we uh, won, but where we lost so that we can do it better the next time around. You said this week, if we're not able to set the agenda, meaning if we're not in the majority, we need to at least significantly affect the agenda. What does that agenda look Absolutely. like for you, even if it is in the mi minority? Well, I think that we have got to keep this march to Baltimore Perfect Union. I think you recall uh, that a year ago I started saying that what this country needed, especially after January 6th, was a very definitive election. And in order to get to that point, we needed for people to step outside of their comfort zones. And that's what happened on Tuesday. We got a very definitive election, and it allows uh, both sides to come together and come up with an agenda for the American people and stop some of the acrimony. People are sick and tired of that. You see all these election deniers have lost. Now, there may be some down in lower positions in legislatures that won, but all the biggest, the nationals, they lost. That ought to tell them something. So let's sit down around the table and figure out how to move an agenda forward that will be a benefit to the American people. We are trying to leave a country better than we found it. Our parents and forebears left us a good country. It is a great country, but we must do what's necessary to make that greatness accessible and affordable for all Americans. That's the kind of agenda I want. I'm not saying that it has to be my way. Let's just make it a way that everybody can feel a part of this great country. Hmm. And we can't maintain our greatness if we can have some goodness existing hmm. among us here in this body. <clears throat> we're going to end on that answer. I don't think there's there's much more to say than that. Congressman Clyburn, as always, we were so grateful for your time this morning. It's good to see you, sir. You be well. Thank you. Same to you guys. Thank good luck you. to you. Thank, Thank you. you. He's got a busy Thank day you. on Capitol Hill ahead of him. <laughs> Justin, here, though, retail sales in the U.S. are surging in October. We'll tell you what it means for the economy. Plus, it is one of the most anticipated concert tours in recent memory. Now Taylor Swift fans, including my sister, are turning their anger toward Ticketmaster. We'll and tell yourself, you come on, and you're myself. a Swifty. You are a total Swifty. Taylor Swift fans unable to shake it off. Ticketmaster's website appeared to crash and freeze on Tuesday during the ticket pre-sales for a handful of dates for her highly anticipated Eras tour. Irate fans took to Twitter. They were calling out Ticketmaster, saying it wasn't loading, it wasn't allowing them to get tickets, even if they had that code for the verified fans, the pre-sale code. So to join us now to talk about what actually happened on the business aspect of this is our business correspondent, Rahel Solomon. I mean, they should have known that this was going to crash the systems. She knows this because she was one of those fans Certainly calling and complaining. A lot Instagram of critics. Everyone waiting. Yeah, a lot of critics, a lot of Swifties feel that way. So this is essentially what happened. This was a pre-sale event meant for fans, not 
bots, not resellers, to be able to buy tickets before general sales on Friday. What ended up happening is there was so much demand that some people were stuck in queues for hours. Other people say that they waited in queues, waited in line, and then by the time they got to actually be able to check out and pay, they were kicked off the site, or suddenly the tickets just disappeared. So lots of frustration. Ticketmaster says, look, there was un- historically unprecedented demand with millions showing up to buy tickets. I think the reason why some say they should have known is because you had to get a code in order to even participate in this pre-sale event. And so some are wondering, well, if I got a code, clearly you know what the demand was. Ticketmaster's saying, look, you had the opportunity to buy a ticket, but just because you had the code doesn't mean that you were necessarily guaranteed a ticket. Seems fishy. Um, Caitlin's getting me tickets. (laughs) I thought Don was getting us tickets for Christmas. That too. (laughs) And my second point is, like, why is Ticketmaster seem like the only place we can buy these tickets from? Is Washington looking at this? Well, certainly a lot of critics would like to know that, too. So Ticketmaster does have dominant share, right? 70 to 80 percent, depending on uh, which estimate you look at. When Ticketmaster and Live Nation merged, there were concerns back then. I think that was 2010. There were concerns back then about whether this would create a monopoly and anti-competitive behavior. What you have with that merger, essentially, is you have the ticket sellers, ticket uh, Ticketmaster, you have the venues, the promoters. The artists. Oh, and by the way, the artists all represented under the umbrella. I think where it starts to get anti-competitive, at least from a legal sense, is are they using that dominant market share to also uh, perform or participate in an anti-competitive way to then charge higher fees? And I think that legally is maybe why the, the bar is so high, especially here in there the U.S. There are some lawmakers I actually would like to look at. Uh, Ilhan Omar, Congressman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and then New Jersey Congressman Bill Parcell has also been watching Ticketmaster. This is since a 2020, this is a, a dynamic pricing scheme following the sales of Bruce Springsteen's 2023 yeah. tour. So it may get, something may happen from this. I mean, certain lawmakers would certainly like it. I mean, the, the, the important thing, I think, with that pricing scheme is that something that we all experience probably on a daily basis. When you buy an airline ticket, that's a dynamic pricing scheme. Essentially, it just means that the price is set based on the demand. So with concerts, there's a part, there are a few tickets, there's a percentage where that is based right. on demand, and we know demand is high. Thank you. Capitalism. Yeah, thanks, yeah. Rahel. America. <laughs> a little other, thanks, some other stuff. Thanks, <laughs> Some you. other stuff Can't wait as to well. get my tickets from Don and Caitlin. It's bad. it's bad because the scalpers, you know, make all the money. And the people want their tickets. They want their Swifties right here, want to see her. And our control room wants their break. So no, we will give it to them. Get it. <laughs> see you in the newsroom. Starts after this. Hi, y'all. I really am. That's it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.